New to Medicare? Go to MyHealthPolicy.com. With MyHealthPolicy.com, you can compare plans from some of the nation's top insurers. Start now to find a plan and apply online. MyHealthPolicy.com makes it easy to find a Medicare Advantage plan in your area, including plans for $0 a month in plan premiums, low out-of-pocket costs, and expansive provider networks. My decision, my Medicare, MyHealthPolicy.com. Update on human species destruct order for planet known as Earth. Proceed. Two world wars and nuclear weapons indicate they may destroy entire planet themselves. What else? Further destruction of their environment continues with many species extinct already. Protective ozone layer partially destroyed. Any reason to spare them? Only this data tape, an organization with a devoted following known as the World Wrestling Federation, it shows promise. Maybe there's hope for these humans. Delay their destruction 100 solar cycles. The World Wrestling Federation. You never know. We might be saving the world. Yeah, WWE has done lots of goofy advertisements over the years, but the ones in the mid-90s were especially goofy. That one, I think, is from 1995, and uh, they're guilty of doing a lot of corny ones at that time. But what's up, everyone? This week in wrestling history, I am Don Tony returning once again. This is episode 19, and we will be covering the period of May 8th through May 14th. Now... People have asked me uh, off and on over the last bunch of episodes, hey, with the sound clips, since everybody enjoys them, could you give us an idea up front what time frame we're doing as far as sound clips or how many that we're going to be playing? I could tell you for this episode, there's about 14 or 15 clips. They range between the years of 1988 and 2015. And it's cool because we got AWA, WWF, WCW, WWE, TNA. So there's some really good ones this week, and I, I really think you'll enjoy them. I mean, I handpick, obviously, the ones that I want to share, not only because they'll spark memories, but in the case of a few, you're probably going to hear some of these for the first time ever, and especially with the one when it comes to Goldust and Dustin Reynolds. They are uh, really underappreciated as far as when they originally came out, but we'll get into that a little bit later. So let's kick it off, shall we? 1975, Jake the Snake Roberts makes his pro wrestling debut. The earliest match that I could find around this time in 75, he wrestled for the CWF promotion in Fort Myers, Florida. He wrestled under his name, Jake Smith Jr., and defeated Dutch Mantel. Not 100% sure if that's his first ever match. I don't know if Jake has ever done an interview and told us what his first ever match was. That's one thing I noticed with a lot of wrestlers, even, you know, the younger wrestlers of today, we usually can track their first match because there's so much information that is posted online. But when it comes to the older wrestlers, you know, it's funny how many of them never talk about who their first match was against, where it took place. Like, you'll have an overall synopsis of it, but you would think just personally, hey, I remember the first time I ever had my official match. You know, I was nervous. I threw up and blah, 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 blah. You do hear people speak about it, but I'm surprised in doing the research how many people have not. So, also in 1975, first time ever, the WWWF championship title is defended in Japan. Bruno, as the WWWF champion, 
uh, wrestled the Pacific Wrestling Federation champion, Giant Baba. Went to a no contest. Uh, they actually called it a title, title unification match, but um, obviously they weren't going to unify either title. So still, from what I read online, great match. 1981, Vern Gagne retires from the in-ring wrestling career after defeating Nick Bockwinkle to retain the AWA heavyweight title. Uh, at the time, him retiring at 55 years old, uh, you know, his he had the reign 10 times. And if you add the total days, because I know lately the Miz gets the most attention, total number of days holding the IC title, which is fine. He held that belt 4,677 days at that time. Now, you, if you've been listening to my episodes, I was never a fan of Stanley Blackburn, the quote-unquote AWA president. Never liked him. Just goofy, goofy, horrible shit. Worse, worse than uh, Jack Tunney. But how did they handle the AWA heavyweight title since Vern Gagne retired as champion? Uh, Stanley Blackburn just gave it back to Nick Bockwinkle since he was the number one contender. Go figure. 1983, you know, something that you really don't read about all that much, but it, it to this day, I know Tommy Gilbert has done interviews. I know people close to Eddie Gilbert have done interviews saying the same thing, but a lot of people feel that this auto accident that Eddie Gilbert suffered this week in 1983, um, he never fully recovered from. Some people think it led to a painkiller addiction. He had injuries to his heart. He broke his neck. It was a car accident. It took place. He was on his way to a TV taping for WWF in Allentown, PA. Got into a very serious auto accident, sustained some massive chest and heart injuries. And, you know, we lost Eddie Gilbert way too soon, obviously. But a lot of people pinpoint this auto accident in 1983 uh, as to, um, you know, just really affecting his career going forward. Um and if you remember, they kind of like tried to play off the broken neck, injury angle, this and that. But he would ultimately leave WWF and would go to Mid-South in 84 and the rest is history. So there you go. 1985. This is weird because this is one of those, do you remember where you were moments? I mean, I'm sure a lot of you out there, unfortunately, with some tragic de deaths in pro wrestling, you remember where you were. I know for some personal memory, some sports results, I remember where I was. Things that have happened in mainstream news, you remember where you were. But I remember where I was in 1985. Of course, I was a kid. I was home. But I still remember just being excited, tuning into it. Just for some reason, a couple of moments always stuck out to me. But it was this week in 1985, WWF taped their first ever edition of Saturday Night's Main Event. And I'm pissed off because at that time, my grandmother was going to take me and take my brother, but we didn't go. I don't remember if it's because my mom wouldn't allow it or if I was just being lazy or maybe I just didn't feel like going, but they still taped it. Uh, it's memorable. I mean, this is the episode where George the Animal Steel ended up turning babyface. Remember when Sheik and Volkov turned their back against him? And then there would be an interview by Gene Oakland near the back, and Steel walks up to him, and they start beating him up. And you know, I think Lou Albano and Fred, Fred Blassie forgot 
at the time they were like, you know, one's a baby face, one's not. And, you know, they, they had this awkward look at each other. It was pretty funny. What about Wendy Richter defeating the fabulous Moolah to retain the women's title and Cindy Lauper running up the rampway and it looked like some guy tried to grab her tit. I've talked about that in the past. And who could ever forget Junkyard Dog uh, defeating Pete Doherty? Because remember, this was right around Mother's Day. Didn't Junkyard Dog bring his mom in the ring? She had that big ass and she had that beautiful bonnet hat on with the flowers. I always remember that match, Pete Doherty just screaming. Junkyard Dog grabbed him by the hair. Ah! 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 Watch it. Tell you, there's just a lot of little memories from that time. But uh, just awesome. I mean, it was a great concept. You know, we had Paul Orndorff that hit the ring. Remember, it was Orton versus Hogan. Roddy Piper interfered. Mr. T interfered. And then we had Paul Orndorff doing the pose down with Hogan. Yeah, there was some cheesy moments. But still, as a kid growing up as a wrestling fan, awesome, awesome, awesome shit. First ever Saturday night's main event. Now we get to 1988, clip number one. I actually don't play the match result. I play the after match interview. Memphis, Tennessee. Jared King Lawler defeats Kurt Henning in a career versus title match for the AWA Heavyweight Championship. Now, you know, leading up to this match, I don't know if a lot of people really thought that Jerry Lawler was going to retire. But as far as storyline goes, people actually were believing it. I mean, this storyline was huge. And if you go online, after the match is over, you'll see local TV stations in Tennessee, Channel 5, Channel 3, really covering this like a major sports event. The city of Memphis, the mayor, Dick Hackett, along with the county mayor, presented Jerry Lawler with Jerry Lawler Day. They actually made May 9th, 1988, Jerry Lawler Day in support of Jerry Lawler, who was going to wrestle on May 9th against Kurt Henning for the title. So it, it was a big deal. And I give AWA a lot of credit. I'm a little surprised you don't see this much anymore. Yeah, I know we're not going to do the dollar per calls or a dollar per minute, beca per minute because this isn't the 90s anymore and people would call it an absolute ripoff if you did it. But I'm just shocked that people don't figure out a way to incorporate some type of money with regards to voting. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, leading up to this match, they were doing a storyline as to who was going to referee it. Larry the Axe Henning, who is the father of Kurt Henning, or Jackie Fargo. And they actually would have fans, AWA would have fans Call a 900 number. Well, there was two 900 numbers and you would be charged a dollar for the call and you would vote who you wanted to be the referee. Now, the storyline was set up where it had to be Jackie Fargo for the most part. But you think of the amount of money. Believe me when I tell you, I don't know if Jerry Lawler ever talks about this aspect of the business, but at that time, they made an insane amount of money people calling and voting a dollar, a dollar, a dollar, a dollar, and people calling multiple times. You could vote 10 times, 20 times you want. If you wanted to pay the money on your phone bill, by all means. And remember, this is 1988. This is not the mid to late 90s where 900 numbers were really a boom. And yes, they had 900 numbers in the 80s as well, but still, that was a big deal leading up to this as well. 
And um, here is the after-match interview that Lance Russell had with Jerry Lawler. And I enjoyed it, especially because I think back to the WWE Hall of Fame and Jerry Lawler, how much he wanted Lance Russell to uh, induct him. And they ended up going with William Shatner instead. And I totally understand. I've talked about this before. I understand why they went with Shatner. But still, you know, when you really examine and just see the love that Lance Russell had towards Jerry Lawler and vice versa over the years, I would have really enjoyed to hear Lance Russell just on the microphone at the Hall of Fame ceremony talking about Jerry Lawler. But we didn't get that. But you'll get now the uh, interview that Lance Russell had with Jerry Lawler immediately after his championship win. You know how proud I am. Thank you. Okay, we're in the dressing room right now with the new world heavyweight champion, uh, Jerry the King Lawler, who just won the world title from Kurt Henning. Now that some of the noise has died down and some of the well-wishers have died away, you're about ready to go to the shower, Jerry. It occurs to me that we've watched you from the front end, and it's been a 14-year quest for this world heavyweight title. It has been a, a dream and an obsession with you. Can you put it into words how it feels now to finally be the world champion? Lance, it's, it's something that uh, I guess, I, I guess uh, probably a thousand times throughout those 14 years, I've thought about what I would say in this situation, what, I would, what it would feel like to hear you Lance Russell called me the world heavyweight champion and, and, and what, I would, what I would feel like and what I would say and, and now that it actually happens and I'm sitting here with the world heavyweight championship belt in my hands it's, it's, it's something I don't, I don't even know if I can put it into words because it's, it's like uh, you know it's like the realization of a dream it's like uh, the, you know a lifelong quest of, of climbing a mountain that you thought you'd never get to the top of and then finally realizing here I am on top of that mountain. Jerry, I got to say film. that in times when you've had title shots, you, you've been 60 minutes with uh, the great Jack Briscoe, and I could name bouts and bouts. Uh, there were times when it looked like you might have given up, but you never did. You never quit hoping for the championship. Oh, no, I never, never quit hoping. And that's, you know, when you give up, Lance, it's, it's all over. And, and uh, they're old sayings, and they don't get to be old sayings unless they ring true. It's quitters never win, and winners never quit. And the, the, the thing that, that makes you, gives you that little extra bit of incentive to not quit, and, uh, you know, it may sound corny, but I don't care. It's the truth as far as I'm concerned, is the fans. We had Lance close to about 9,000 people out there tonight. And I'll be perfectly honest with you, there was a time several times first time right after that pile driver mm -hmm. I thought it was over mm -hmm. second time when May busted my eye open early in the match it messed up the vision in my right eye I thought it was over then but I knew I knew deep down inside that if I quit not only am I letting myself down but I'm letting out all of those nine letting down all those nine thousand people and a lot many thousands of others that weren't able to be here tonight I'm letting all of those people down and those are the people Lance that make us, not just me, but any athlete, you're absolutely nothing. I don't care how big and how great you think you are. You're only as good as your fans. You're absolutely nothing without them. And there's no way that I've come this far and got that close that I was going to let them down tonight. The world champion, Jerry Lawler. Thank you, Lance. That sounds really, really good to hear you say that.
1989, Steve Austin makes his pro wrestling debut. From what I have, he wrestled for World Class in Dallas, Texas, under his real name, Steve Williams. And in his first match, he defeated Frogman LeBlanc. 1989, Roddy Piper ends his two-year retirement, makes a surprise return for the WWF at a house show in California. He substituted for Jake the Snake Roberts and defeated Ted DiBiase. 1994, ECW had an event when worlds collide. I remember this clearly. It was so fucking cool. You had Arn Anderson and Bobby Eaton, who were wrestling for WCW at the time. They came in, and they were part of a tag team match. It was Sabu and Bobby Eaton uh, versus Terry Funk and Arn Anderson. Now, I'm not going to get into all the particulars as far as you know what the deal was, but there were some legal issues with Paul Heyman and WCW, and they came to an agreement where they would allow Arn Anderson and Bobby Eaton wrestle that night in ECW. And it's an entertaining match. You could definitely see this footage pretty much anywhere. Um, when Worlds Collide, it was, it was a big deal at that time. I enjoyed it. Another event I absolutely enjoyed in 1994, and this is why you'll hear me say repeatedly on these shows, go to YouTube, go to Video Motion, go to WWE Network, go to Global Force Wrestling's network, because you really, even if you haven't seen some of this stuff in 10, 20 years, you go back and you watch it, and you remember lots of little tidbits that you, that you might have forgotten about over the years. In 94, they had an event for AAA called Triple Mania 2. And the main event was Cian Carras, Conan, and Pero Aguayo over Jake the Snake Roberts, the Love Machine, and Miguel Perez Jr., two out of three falls match. And, you know, you go back and you watch it, and Jake Roberts obviously is a little bit heavier, but you look at the card in itself, Mr. Yoso um, and Fuerza Guerrera, along with Juvi, over Rey Mysterio, Rey Mysterio Jr., both Rey Mysterio, Senior Jr., and Volador. Jushin Thunder Lager, Octagon, and El Hijo Del Santo, along with Tiger Mask over La Parca Sicosis, Blue Panther, and Eddie Guerrero. Mascara Sagrada over the Black Cat. I mean, this card was absolutely loaded, and it's a really, really cool event to watch. I mean, obviously, the commentary is in Spanish, but still, great event. A lot of people don't know that after the main event match went down, Jake the Snake Roberts put the snake around his neck and as he was going backstage somehow the snake got startled and started contracting itself and squeezing jake roberts's neck and you know almost to the point where he passed out and people were really really worried that jake roberts was going to be seriously injured they had to revive him i don't know if a lot of people are aware of that story but uh Man, you go back and just look at that main event, how over Conan was. Jesus Christ. I mean, I know obviously I have a certain uh, personal connection with Conan and why I personally like him even more now. But uh, still, you have any... Talk about Hulk Hogan. I mean, he was the Hulk Hogan of Mexican wrestling at that time. Big, huge, over. 1995, Randy Savage versus Steve Austin took place for WCW Saturday Night... It was a tournament match for the vacated U.S. title. The reason why I mention this match, that is the only time that Macho Man and Steve Austin ever wrestled each other one-on-one. Anywhere. Anywhere. Also in 1995, Bill Alfonso made his debut in ECW. Who could ever forget that? He came out. He was the the heel wrestler, uh, referee. 
doing the gimmick that the Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission came in, wanted to enforce rules. You look at ECW at that time with the hardcore wrestling, and then you bring in a referee who's going to try to eliminate all that. He got over immediately. And yet it was a lot of interaction between Todd Gordon and Bill Alfonso in storyline, and then Bill Alfonso would ultimately manage Taz, Sabu. I mean... He was great. He really was. And uh, to this day, it's funny. You know, look, I don't blame younger fans out there, but it's funny to have fans watch old school wrestling matches uh, going back 10, 15 years plus. And they're like, hey, wait a minute. That, that referee looks like Bill Alfonso. Holy shit, he's refereeing like some big profile. Match. Yeah, he was a legit referee. I mean, you look back at the history of wrestling. You don't see many people really make the conversion from, you know, like one character to another. And here you got a, a case where Bill Alfonso went from a referee to a referee, you know, but he also became a manager. And yeah, a lot of wrestlers over the years have become referees. I mean, I was watching a match recently that, uh, that we cover on the show this week where little Guido was refereeing for WWE. I mean, we've had Pete, very legendary wrestlers. I'm not saying that little Guido's a legend. I mean, I'm no disrespect to him. But you go into the 70s, the 60s, the 80s, you had some big-time wrestlers from years past who would work refereeing on a pretty consistent basis. But as far as transitioning into a real big-time character, not too many people could take make the claim that Bill Alfonso has. Seriously. It was pretty cool. Talking about pretty cool, also in 1995, WWF had its first ever in-your-house pay-per-view. Took place in Syracuse, New York. And at that time, the idea of the in-your-house pay-per-views were that it was a lower price than the main pay-per-views, you know, SummerSlam, Survivor Series, WrestleMania, King of the Ring, Royal Rumble. So they thought, okay, you know, we'll put in these smaller pay-per-views for other months. We'll charge $14.95. And, you know, we'll give you a pretty decent card. And you look on the WWE Network under the In Your House events, <laughs> did a lot of them. And many of these are extremely memorable. But this week in, the, in 95, they had their first ever In Your House. And for those that may want to know what the matches were that night, you had a couple of dark matches, Bam Bam Bigelow over Tatanka, Undertaker over Kama, British Bulldog fought Owen Hart to a 15-minute time limit draw that was a qualifying match for the king of the ring diesel over psycho sid in the main event to retain the wwf title jerry lawler over bret hart owen hart and yokozuna over the smoking guns uh mabel over adam bomb razor ramon over jeff jarrett and the roadie and bret hart over sakushi uh sakushi sakushi the fuck is sakushi hakushi and they also had a free-for-all match before the event even started jean pierre lafitte over bob holly that same week in 1995, WWF had an event in Boston, Massachusetts. They called it A Night to Remember. And the reason why they did that was because this was the last ever event they were going to be having in the old Boston Gardens. They brought back a lot of legends from years past, Arnold Skull and Angelo Savoldi, George the Animal Steel, Pat Patterson, Pete Doherty, you know, who I mentioned earlier, he was a local guy. And um, from Dorchester. So he was the Duke of Dorchester. They had Killer Kowalski there, Gorilla Monsoon, Nikolai Volkov, others. Vince was there. And, um, you know, the reason why I mention this event reminds me a lot of Starcade 2017. 
you know, it had that same reminiscent feeling to it. And I think WWE really misses the boat by not doing more of these on house shows. Just to bring in a couple of guys, a couple of legends, you know, number one, you probably don't have to spend an awful lot of money to bring them in just to make an appearance. Number two, you know, they, they would appreciate the fact that they haven't been forgotten. And number three, it mixes up the card a little bit. It mixes up the night a little bit. You know, yeah, you do segments where Elias sings and New Day comes out and dances and you have other people, uh, Noe Jose and others. But still, I think on house shows, this is something WWF should do a little bit more of. Do it regionally. You come to California, you bring some people that are more dominant on the West Coast. I don't know. Anyway. And uh, also, 1995 for WWF. Uh, <laughs> this is great. Now, last week we were talking about 2000. Bob Backlund was going to run for Congress in Connecticut. Well, five years earlier, on Monday Night Raw, uh, Bob Backlund made a different political announcement. And I'm going to share the audio with you now. Just pay close attention to the dates in history that Bob Backlund refers to. It's pretty fucking funny if you could catch on uh, the inaccuracies. Not intended, I might add. Would you please welcome the former two-time WWF champion, Mr. Bob Backlund. Well, Mr. Backlund, this is your opportunity. For weeks now, you've been talking about some big, big announcement. What is it? You know, it's going to um, have a deleterious effect on a lot of you people out there. My announcement is going to hurt your feelings. Some of you people are going to be very jovial by what I say. But in the Hartford Civic Center on April 2nd of 1995, I saw a scintillation. It was a minute ray at that time. And throughout the match with your hitman, it grew and it was ionized over the whole roof of the Hartford Civic Center. You got that, ladies and gentlemen? All right, Mr. Backlund, for the benefit of the rest of us who are on this planet, hey, if you don't mind, what is it? Why did you come here? What is the big announcement? You know, there's a lot of things that have happened in my life that have been wonderful. They've been great. And there's a lot of things that happen in the whole world that have mesmerized all of you people. Like in 1776 DC when the Olympics started. Like in 323 DC when Alexander the Great died. Or like in January, July 4th of 1776 when the United States declared their independence or like in 1912 when the Titanic sank Mr. Backlund please or like on December 22nd of 1983 when John F. Kennedy was shot in Dallas, Texas alright Mr. Backlund again or like in July of 19. 69 when Armstrong stepped foot on the moon. 
you know how serious that is? Those are historical moments indeed, Mr. Back, and I would suspect that uh, you're about to give us another one, aren't you? Or like when Mr. Backlund won the WWF title on February 20th of 1978. And then he came back from adversity, which you know nothing about, on November 23rd, 1994. He reigned again. And tonight, I want to, I, I want to, pardon me. Get a hold of yourself. Bob Backlund having a, apparently a little choked up over this announcement. This must be really big. Mr. Backlund, your shirt tail is showing. I'm under my, I'm under complete control, ladies and gentlemen. I'm very cognizant of everything that's going on. And you pardon me again. Mr. Backlund can't get it out, apparently. This is obviously an emotional moment for Bob Backlund. Mr. Backlund, please, we're running out of time. Please. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, I'm contemplating running for the presidency of the United States of America. For those out there that couldn't figure out the dates that were wrong, well, look, it was only like one or two, but I thought it was pretty funny. December 22nd, 1983 was the night that John F. Kennedy was shot and killed. No, that night was actually actually the night that Hulk Hogan won the WWF title. And uh, yeah, he was using DC instead of BC. And at the first ever Olympics took place in 1776, DC. So it was pretty funny, but, um, you know, look, I have said this repeatedly. I thought Bob Backlund changing from his original character and personality to Mr. Bob Backlund is one of the best heel turns or transformations that I have ever seen as a wrestling fan. To go from one big-time extreme to another, you know, it just, it, it worked and to this day, I think people absolutely prefer Mr. Bob Backlund over, you know, the nice guy Backlund. 1995, we've seen this shot many times over the years. When Bret Hart was feuded with Shawn Michaels, there was a moment where Bret Hart was uh, in a wheelchair claiming a leg injury. And he was in the ring confronting Shawn Michaels and he was standing up in front of the wheelchair and Shawn Michaels hit sweet chin music onto Bret Hart. He falls backwards over the wheelchair. Happened this week on Raw in 1997. Also, this week in 1997, two other moments 
on Monday Night Raw, which I think are pretty cool. And I'm going to share both audio clips for you right now. First one, some controversy. This is a very famous promo that Farouk did on Monday Night Raw with Vince McMahon. He was going to be the number one contender to face The Undertaker. And Farouk, yep, he went there with the race card. How does it feel to be the number one contender for the World Wrestling Federation Championship? Oh, it feels great. I shouldn't have to tell you how it feels. You've seen number one contenders come out here before. Our man Johnson gave it everything he had last night, but no, that wasn't good enough. You know, that was then, and this is now. And I'll tell you what time it is now. It's time for Farouk to become the World Wrestling Federation Champion. And speaking of that, let me ask you a long-awaited question. When was the last time that the World Wrestling Federation had a black man to wear that belt? Can you answer that for me? Answer that question. No. Never. No, you can't answer that. You know why? Because you, there never has been one. Oh, you, you've had token blacks in position of intercontinental champion like Ahmed Johnson for a short period of time. Oh, you've had U.S. champions like Bobo Brazil with the U.S. belt for a short period of time. No, I'll tell you what. And speaking of that, when was the recent chance that Ahmed Johnson had a shot to become the World Wrestling Federation champion? Tell me that. Can you answer that? No, you can't. Because you people don't feel a black man is worthy of wearing the World Wrestling Federation title. You don't feel a black man is worthy of being champion of the WWF. But you do feel a black man is worthy of washing your car. You do feel a black man is worthy of washing your clothes. You do think a black man is worthy of even raising your kids. But let me tell you something. Those were those days, and this is a different day and age. You see, no longer are we marching up and down the street wearing our shoes. No longer are we calling radio stations complaining. We are taking matters into our own hands. When I get to swinging these fists and kicking these feet, you understand that, don't you? Huh? You understand that, right? Everyone understands that. And this has nothing to do with being black. What's the matter with you? Oh, it has everything to do with being black. You tell me when was the last time a black man had a shot at being the World Wrestling Federation champion. There has never been one. But I tell you what, at King of the Ring, King Farouk will live again. Because you see, your white savior, the Undertaker, will be a dead man. Don't you feel these comments are racist? Listen, I didn't come out here to be a role model for anybody, but I'll guarantee you this. Some little black kid, a little black girl sitting at home right now, feel the pain and the anger that I feel. No longer are we sitting back being pacifist. We are going to take matters into our own hands, and that means by any means necessary. Now, when you really listen to Farouk's comments, you kind of think, okay, you know, at that time, yeah. I mean, I, you might not, you know, disagree with him. To this day, I think a lot of people still feel that blacks are very underrepresented in the title picture when it comes to wrestling. Um, I know that if you listen to a lot of trainers, if you listen to a lot of indie promotions throughout the United States and beyond, you will hear them say that in their schools, they get a, a lot uh, larger of a number of white wrestle, white people trying to become pro wrestlers. You you know, you have to get 
black wrestlers to go to the schools to train to work the indie shows to get hone your craft and if you're having an indie card or an indie show or a school and 80% of the people that sign up are white of course there's going to be a larger white presence than black but still you know you look at that time 1997 I don't think Farouk was all that far off from reality seriously another moment that took place that night which was really enjoyable at the time you know, this was the time where Raven was leaving WCW to go to uh, w, uh, ECW to go to WCW. And they were trying to get the immediate reaction away from the fact that Tommy Dreamer had just pinned Raven. Raven was leaving. Lights went off, came back on in ECW. There's Jerry Lawler in the ring. Accidentally canes Tommy Dreamer's nuts. Uh, if you have ever seen that, it's a little cringeworthy to see. And they were doing a storyline with Jerry Lawler, extremely crappy wrestling. Remember, they had their first ever pay-per-view earlier in the year, and Jerry Lawler was very vocal against ECW on Monday Night Raw. This was a storyline where it was Jerry Lawler and WWF, not necessarily WWF, but Jerry Lawler versus ECW. And it was this day in 1997 that Jerry Lawler brought ECW wrestler Rob Van Dam to Monday Night Raw. This is Rob Van Dam's first ever match in WWF. As you will hear on the mic, he was not polished anywhere close, but still, it's a moment to remember. At this time, he was not signed to a WWF contract. This was to just, you know, basically, you wash my hand, my face, I wash your face. You know, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. They did this to help progress the ECW storyline and also get some fresh faces on Monday Night Raw. So I present to you now, this week, 1997, Rob Van Dam makes his debut match. This includes a promo by Jerry Lawler. Little promo from Rob Van Dam. And oh, by the way, his opponent was a, as Jerry Lawler called it, a John Bon Jovi lookalike or wannabe Jeff Hardy. The following contest is scheduled for one fall. About to come down the aisle from Battle Creek, Michigan, weighing 234 pounds, Rob Van Dam. And his opponent from Virginia, weighing 220 pounds, Jeff Hardy. Microphone, Finkel. Let me tell you something. The last time I saw something that looked like you, I flushed it. Why don't you go to Vince McMahon and borrow one of his toupees instead of coming in out here and looking like an idiot? Get out of here. Now, all of you morons saw me come out here a few weeks ago and talk a little bit about ECW. Yeah. Extremely crappy wrestling. That's what it stands for. I was the only man that had the guts to tell you idiots the truth about ECW, how much it stinks up until now. Now I've found another man who has actually been in the ECW and you have come to find out, Rob Van Dam, exactly how low, how cheap, how rotten the ECW is. Is that right? What you're saying, Jerry Lawler, is complete fact. ECW is nothing but low-budgeted, very low-talented wannabes that cannot 
Hold on to someone with the extreme talents of Rob Van Dam. That's right, and I'll tell you what, I got so much confidence in this man now that he is in the big time, baby. The World Wrestling Federation, leave those punks behind. This man is gonna be, he's gonna be called Mr. Monday Night. I guarantee you, Mr. Monday Night. Hey, take care of this little uh, John Bon Jovi wannabe, whatever he is right here. Well, uh, what a surprise, Rob Van Dam on the active ECW roster, or at least he was until tonight. I'm sure that his presence here has not been cleared with uh, ECW officials. And, well, Jeff Hardy and Rob Van Dam, and I'm sure that, that Paul Heyman in ECW is not gonna be very happy that one of his competitors is gone. Can you believe that? Hey, don't even talk about Paul E. Dangerously, or as you said, Paul Heyman, because nobody cares about the ECW, and certainly Mr. Monday Night doesn't care about him anymore because he's in the big time now. Look at that. Did you see that, huh? Very nicely executed spinning uh, martial arts kick by Rob Van Dam, and I, I would suspect that uh, Mr. Van Dam's tenure in ECW may be limited. Oh my, wow. what a suicidal move. A somersault punch up over the top. That was an outstanding move by Mr. Monday Night. There you go, you got it right for a change, JR. Mr. Monday Night, he's a little disoriented now, but there's that punk right there, get a hold of him. Sling him in there. Hey, I'm gonna tell you something, right now, all of those, is it, what do you call them, low budgets? All of those low budgets. What's this? ECW, yeah, look at this. Wow. One more time, look at that. Well, that'll leave a mark, I'll tell you. Oh, yeah. oh wow. Very impressed, Rob Van Dam, or should I say, yeah, Mr. Monday, Mr. Night. Monday Night. Very impressive, but. Listen to these idiots, you sold out. What are you talking about, he sold out? He's moving on up, baby, he's with the big time now. Well, this young man certainly agreeing with Jerry Lawler in Lawler's evaluation. Uh, the ECW. I'm, I'm sick and tired of hearing all these morons. Wow, did you see that? What elevation! Well, that was a Jimmy Snooker-like Hall of Fame slash. Not better than Jimmy Right Snooker. off the top. Well, it was reminiscent of Jimmy Snooker. That was a great move. I'm tired of hearing all these morons, especially these idiots up in the Philadelphia area, talk about how great ECW is. Big deal. They run in a bingo hall, and they draw about a thousand people. In Philadelphia, you can draw. Oh! That split leg moonsault was a beautiful move, and Mr. Monday Night may not be welcome back at ECW. But he was impressive tonight. You think he cares? Hey, Paul Dangerously, eat your heart out. You lost the only piece of talent your little crummy organization has ever had. Take a look at this one more time. Watch the elevation. Wow! Bang! And then look at this, Ross. Mr. Monday Night. Look at that. Beautiful. Great flexibility, great athleticism by Mr. Monday Night, who may not be too welcome back in ECW. He's not going back to ECW. He's in the World Wrestling Federation. He's Mr. Monday Night. You know, my apologies to Goldust, because I just realized as I was playing that, I actually have another clip from 1997 for WWF. You know, this episode of Raw had a lot of memorable moments on it. And this one is probably the one that you probably remember the least. 
and I thought they were great at this time. Last week and this week on Monday Night Raw 97, they were having some more personal interviews with Dustin Rhodes, Dustin Reynolds, a.k.a. Goldust. And it reminded me a lot of the interview segments that Jim Ross was doing with Mick Foley backstage, you know, just in giving us a little insight of his personal life and growing up. And yeah, we all knew personally since we were Mick Foley fans at the time, but it was still cool to see it played out on TV. Well, they did this also with Goldust. And I, I want to share one of the clips that they aired. This is the one that took place this week in 97. Just to paint the picture a little bit, you have Goldust being interviewed with Marlena, a.k.a. Terry Reynolds, right by his side, and he is not dressed up as Goldust. And they're talking about, you know, his personal life, transitioning to Goldust, and, you know, the audio doesn't necessarily do total justice because if you watch the video of it, uh, Goldust really starts crying, shedding some legit tears on uh, just hoping that his father was proud at what he was doing. So I just thought it was great. So here you go, 1997, Goldust segment from Monday Night Raw. Last week, we learned that the creation of Goldust was a direct result of Dustin Reynolds' lifelong journey to escape his father's shadow and assume an identity of his own. But now that Goldust has been outed, what's next for the most bizarre and controversial superstar in WWF history? I just want to have some fun with this character That's and, and take care of my family. You know, that's, that's the main thing. Entertain the people. I mean, it, when it's time to work, work and, and entertain 110% them people like I know I can. And when it's time for family, give them the attention that they need. Goldust's goal is to, every time I walk through that curtain and the, the people are screaming, hollering, whatever, for me, it's, it's time to turn it on. It's time to, to uh, put on a show and, and to entertain them people into where they, when, they when, when the show's over and they leave the building, they say, man, not uh, taken away from anybody else, but that gold dust. He really was something tonight. Man, that match he had tonight, that was so entertaining. That's what I want. That, that makes me feel good. It, it feels real good when you go out there and they're, they're screaming and yelling and to where you can't even barely hear yourself, you know, and goosebumps just thinking about it. As the son of an American legend, young Dustin found himself competing with fans and the demand of the road for his father's time and attention. Ironically, now Dustin finds himself in a similar position with his three-year-old daughter, Dakota. In, in any relationship or any household, I think family should come first. You know, there were, there were things that, uh, that happened in the past with me that, that I can't change, you know, that I have to let go and, and, and let them be. But I can certainly make sure that for Dakota's sake, they will definitely definitely not happen. I just want that when I'm 70 years old and crippled and sitting in an old rocking chair, lazy boy watching TV with my clicker, I want her to still feel like she can come sit in my lap. The greatest, the greatest night of my life was, was when uh, Terry or Marlena and I were walking to the ring and I saw her to the left there and I didn't know she was in the crowd and uh, she, uh, she put her hand on her chest like I do, you know, and she was she went like that, and I went, oh my God, you know, she is mimicking me, you know? And I remember when I used to do that with my dad, and it was just like, 
uh, I just looked up to him so much, you know. And here she was looking up to me. And uh, it just, it was the greatest feeling in the world. Dustin Reynolds is living his version of the American dream. Finally emerging from his father's shadow, no one will soon forget the name Gold Dust, nor Dustin Reynolds. But the accomplishments Dustin is most proud of are being a good husband and a loving father. Now as a grown man, deep inside, there's still a young boy who seeks his father's approval. If you're watching Dad and, and, and all those years that uh, I looked up to you and wanted to, to be just like you and, and sitting in the back and where you would, you would place me in, in, in the back of the arena and you'd walk to the ring and I mean you were just, you were, you were bigger than life. And I wanted to be just like you. That's why I wanted to live with you, and I didn't have you, and I got that chance. And I became a professional wrestler. It was the hardest damn thing in, in, in my entire life to, to do, to pull it off, but I did. Nobody, nobody's gonna take that away from me, whether I was Dustin Rhodes, and now as I'm gold dust, there's nobody on the face of this planet that can do gold dust like I can do. And that's a fact. So I hope to God that you are proud of me. So I'm proud of myself. I'm proud of my family. And I love my family very much. I love you, Dad. Yes, the audio clips keep coming. This one is great. You know, recent weeks we talked about in 1998 the DX Army invading WCW. You know, they wanted to show up and they were confronting Eric Bischoff. You had Sean Waltman make a surprise return to WWF and bashing Eric Bischoff. Well, this week in 1998 on Monday Nitro, Eric Bischoff came out riding a motorcycle, got on a microphone, responded to what Sean Waltman has been saying about him on Monday Night Raw, but then also challenged a certain someone to a fight on their upcoming WCW pay-per-view. Oh, I feel nothing, nothing but love here tonight from each and every one of you. Thank you all for loving me. But you know, as I look through the crowd tonight, I wonder what you must be thinking. And I wonder what Vince McMahon is thinking. You know, because for the last couple of weeks, he's been sending his little wannabes around, demanding to talk to moi. Problem with that is, he only sends them where he knows I'm not going to be. But that's okay, because I've got a solution. Sean Waltman, you want an apology from me? You actually show up at our offices on a Monday afternoon 
when I think you probably got it figured out, even you, Sean, are smart enough to figure out I probably won't be there. And as far as the apology goes, bite me. I apologize to no one. But I've got a better idea. Because, Sean, I know you're just a little puppet. You do what Vince McMahon tells you to do. So, Vince McMahon, this is for you. I'm coming to your backyard this Sunday. That's right, where's some ass? Got a little pay-per-view thing going on. And I got a hell of an idea. Just a hell of an idea. You want me? I'm going to be in your backyard. Consider this an open invitation, Vince McMahon. You show up at Slamboree. It'll be me and you, McMahon, in the ring. Well, he's got me with that one. I buy a ticket. How about it, Vinny? But I want to warn you people right now, if you think Vince McMahon has got the guts to show up, don't buy this pay-per-view, because I guarantee you, he is not man enough to step into the ring with moi. But I'll be there, Vinnie Mac. I'll be waiting for you, and I'm gonna knock you out. See you there! Wow. Holy smokes. Never thought in my wildest dreams of being a professional wrestling announcer that I would witness anything like that. Now, obviously, Vince McMahon didn't accept the challenge. But a lot of people have wondered over the years, what would have happened if Vince showed up? Would have been interesting. But, of course, it's one of those storylines where you just know you can't play reverse psychology and say, okay, motherfucker, I'll show up. What are you going to do? They're going to legitimately beat each other up? Still, it would have been amazing to see something like that, even though I don't think we would have probably liked how it would have went down. Uh, still, and, and honestly, if you look at that time, really probably all of the benefit would have went to Eric Bischoff and WCW if Vince would have showed up on their pay-per-view. Think about it. Because at that time, remember, there was no digital WWE network or anything like that, no YouTube. So, you know, you missed a pay-per-view, you would order the replay. You would either order it late that night or you would order it the next day. So could you imagine the pay-per-view buy rate if they would have heard that Vince re legitimately showed up? Maybe the buy rate wouldn't have broke records, but I think the secondary buys the night after, I think would have been huge for WCW. Also in 1998, a little bit of controversy. I think a lot of people remember Mick Foley and Time Magazine more than anyone else. You know, for people that don't know what I'm talking about, Time Magazine back in, uh, I think it was the late 90s, they were doing like their Man of the Century or something, something like that. And tons of people were voting in Mankind. And at one point, Mankind was the leading vote getter. And I think Time Magazine didn't know how the fuck they were going to handle this if he would have, in fact, won. Well, a couple of years before, it actually happened to People Magazine. They were doing something called the 50 Most Beautiful People in the World. 
And a lot of wrestling websites at that time were all trying to get fans to go on people's website and vote for Ric Flair. And at one point, Ric Flair, I think, was ranked like number two or number three as far as top vote getters. And look, I'm not saying that Ric Flair is ugly, but in 1998, would you put him in the top 50 most beautiful people in the world? I don't think even Ric Flair would say he'd be in the top 500 most beautiful people in the world at that time. But it was pretty funny how it went down at that time that Ric Flair was almost at the top of that list. And eventually, you know, it would balance itself out. I don't remember who won it. Was it Leonardo DiCaprio? I'm not sure who won it, but I think it was Leonardo DiCaprio. For some reason, I'm just, his name is coming to mind. So that same week in 1998, you know, we had two other moments. We actually three. I got two more audio clips for everybody out there. First one I'm going to talk about, which is not an audio clip. ECW had an event uh, here in Queens, New York that I actually went to, went to. It was called It Ain't Seinfeld. And the reason why they called it that was because that same night was the uh, the final episode, the finale of Seinfeld, which the finale I thought sucked. <laughs> I don't know what it is in recent year, you know, the last couple of decades, but a lot of finales really were not all that great. And uh, the Seinfeld finale, I'm glad I didn't stay home to watch it. But, you know, ECW had an event. It was entertaining. And the reason why I bring up the event is because that night, Taz actually introduced us with a new heavyweight title called the FTW title. Fuck the world. So I figured I'd just share that with everyone. Now we get two audio clips. First one is only four or five minutes long. You know, it was an event that, you know, might have been cool at the time, interesting. Remember, there was a lot of buzz with Diamond Dallas Page and Raven you know, involved on MTV and having some fights. And believe me, WCW made several appearances on MTV at that time. And WCW had a lot of buzz. So in 98, this week, at that time, they were going to have an event in Manhattan at Chelsea Piers. And it was uh, in coordination with WCW and MTV. And it was called the Ultimate Music Video Feud. And basically what it was was that a wrestler tag team would represent, you know, an artist from MTV, somebody, you know, with popular music videos. And then the wrestlers would wrestle on behalf of the person who they were representing. And then you would have the finale and who would ever win would be the wrestler who would be the winner. And then you would have the artist that would, you know, be the winner as well. So unfortunately, though, if you go Google weather history for May 9th, 1998, here in New York, it rained and it rained and it rained and it was windy and rain pretty much. Look, I know a few people who attended get very butthurt online when they say, it didn't ruin it, it was great, it was cool, it was interesting, it was different. No, they, the rain fucked it up. For the most part, there was only one match on the entire night, which lasted three minutes long. You had some interaction between DDP and Raven, obviously. But still, they cut it from three hours to two hours. They were doing lots of talking segments because the ring was a, a major insurance risk for injury. It's raining tremendously. In fact, the only audio clip that you could find online or your video clip is high voltage versus public enemy. And I'm going to share the audio with you now. 
And I'm just sharing it with you because you'll hear how they were basically pushing this ultimate music video feud. You'll hear who rep who High Voltage is represented and who PE is. I wonder if the artists even knew that they were being quote unquote represented in this tournament. But you hear the raindrops in the background, and if you watch the video, it looks like um, the fucking referee. Oh man, um, shit! I'm I'm drawing a blank right now. Uh, what the fuck? Uh, Nick Patrick looks like he's holding a can of soda during the whole match. It didn't work out. It really did not. And by the way, when you hear them mention Carson in the ring, I think that's Carson Daly. I'm not a fan of Carson Daly. I could give a shit about him. And I wasn't a big MTV fan at this time, other than maybe you know Beavis and Butthead a few years earlier. But I think that's the Carson they're, rep they're referring to. But here you go. Quick moment from this week in wrestling history from New York City, WCW, Wrestling in the Rain. Representing Will Smith, it is High Voltage. Danger, High Voltage. Ooh, let me tell you something. Will Smith and High Voltage have a lot in common. One thing is he's the, we're the king of the ring. The Fresh Prince, he's got it going on. When you step in the squared circle with High Voltage, we're definitely pounding some heads. Will Smith will be pounding the funky beats on the microphone. We're pounding them definitely the square circle. Oh, okay, How can you go wrong with Rage of Chaos and Will Smith? We're all going to get jiggy wiggy, jiggy wiggy, wiggy, baby. Hey, everybody. Matt Pitville once again with Larry and Tony. What do you guys think about Rage this one? They really have a young duo here, and a high voltage Will Smith does because they're up, they're coming, they're strong, and they love the rain. They like it out here. Yeah, well, they better be careful. High voltage, you know, water, great conductor of electricity, and the public enemy, these guys are veterans. This is right up their alley. That's right. So representing LL Cool J, it's public enemy. They film. They start feeling it with them today. What do you think? They've got all the furniture with them. They've got the tables. They got the trash cans. They're ready to fight. That's not trash cans. That's a normal street in New York. That's true. Absolutely. Carson, what's going on up there with you, my man? Oh. <laughs> the feud. The feud has started right here in the ring. Public Enemy, representing LL Cool J and High Voltage. I'm getting the hell out of the way here. They are not messing around in the rain. You sure? They're hitting each other out here hard. Representing LL Cool J versus Will Smith, High Voltage, and Public Enemy. Oh my God. Jesus. All right, well, you know, Carson almost I'm got right in the middle of that. Ref, I Right. They almost got in the middle of that, and I, just like we thought, Larry, you know, you talked about this young duo. They don't care about rain nor the weather elements. They're going right at it. Yeah. Was that dog food to hit each other? I don't know. That could have been Carson. They got rid of him. But both these teams, they're insane. Public enemy 
They don't care. They just want to smash their opponents through the table. High voltage, of course. Two young guys that want to make a name for themselves, a reputation. Look at, look at the way they slip. These are dangerous conditions. Ankles, knees, and necks can be broke in the wink of an eye here. You know what happens? What you're seeing are two teams who know each other quite well. Public Enemy, the former World Tag Team Champions, and of course, High Voltage, up and coming, and they scored a win only three months ago on one of our programs, Worldwide Wrestling, against the same former Tag Team Champs. Yeah, and it's even hard to see that wind is blowing. Some woman was holding on to her umbrella, looked like a 300 pounds Mary Poppins going up in the air there. It's hard to see what's coming at you. This guy's on the table. Little table dance coming here now. Watch out, roll, rock, oh, rock. Rocco Rock and the table goes splat and the fans and Nick Patrick's gonna count him he out right pinned, on the apron. Did he pin the table? Hey, he pinned everything that was on the floor. How'd you like that, man? Great, that's amazing. I knew those guys from hanging out with them earlier. I knew Public Enemy were gonna do it. So Public Enemy will have LL advancing. Public Enemy have won the round. There we go, amazing. I'm excited about that, aren't you? Uh, you, you were hanging out with Public Enemy earlier? Yeah, I was. Wow. Now, Final moment for 1998 to get into, and this is an audio clip, and this is a longer one. There was a, a very popular show at the time in Canada called TSN's Off the Record, hosted by Michael Landsberg. I know Michael Landsberg rubbed people the wrong way, you know, at that time. A lot of people called him conceited. For some reason, a lot of people tried to bundle Michael Landsberg and Dave Meltzer together. I, I don't know if it was jealousy or what. And yes, Michael Landsberg, he sometimes could be a prick. But the interviews were still very interesting, somewhat revealing. And you got to understand the era that we're talking about. 1998, business was still protected by a lot of people. All right. Yes, it was transitioning into, you know, just publicly admitting that this is predetermined sports entertainment. Look, Vince has been calling it sports entertainment since I think the late 70s. <laughs> so it ain't nothing new. But still, to shoot and be straight out on TV was really almost unheard of at that time. And then when you add in the fact that Steve Austin is in the middle of his feud with Vince McMahon, probably the most important feud. Honestly, I, no, I will change that. It was the most important feud of the Attitude Era, the Monday Night Wars. Mr. McMahon versus Steve Austin, the number one most important feud. So now you have Steve Austin on Michael Landsberg's TSN Off the Record. And Michael Landsberg is trying to ask questions that require straight up shoot answers. And you could hear Steve Austin trying to stay in character and some ways being forced to get out of it. And I give Michael Landsberg credit because if you actually listen to this, you could hear him pretty much trying to say, all right, Steve, I know you're in character. Yeah, I know you're in character, but that's not what the show's about. Yeah, okay, all right, I get it. But he knew to move on and not harp the issue, which actually I like because he wasn't trying to really give gotcha questions. But I enjoyed it. I think you will as well. This also was unfortunately not too long after the death of Brian Pillman, so Steve Austin talks as well. But to go back and remember the storyline, the feud, and how, you know, I hate using the term because I'm not in the business like that, but, uh, you know, things were still very much kayfabe, especially amongst the big-time stars. 
you know, it's a very interesting interview. I liked it. So I'm going to give it to you now. It's about 20 minutes long. Steve Austin appearing on TSN's Off the Record. On our very first show, we put the question to the audience, who do you want to see on the show? And on our very first show, I remember that first day, we got about five emails saying, we want to see Stone Cold Steve Austin. We've done probably 200 shows since then, at least five a day, maybe 10, sometimes 20, our most requested guest ever. So you can probably guess who is here. Stone Cold Steve Austin. Thanks for joining us today. DTA, Steve. Don't trust anybody, anybody. right? All right, don't turn your back. I'm sorry? Don't turn your back on me. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's why the chairs are facing in this direction. Uh, You are the current WWF heavyweight champion. Uh, You are probably the most popular wrestler in the world and one of the most popular wrestlers of all times. But here's what Eric Bischoff, your former boss, had to say about you. Take a look. Right now, today, Steve Austin would be a mid-card player. The fact is Steve Austin is a big fish in a relatively small pond when it comes to a talent roster. And he's doing very well. I don't want to take anything away from Steve. He's done very well. But he's doing it in an environment that he can be the guy, he can be at the top. He couldn't be at the top in WCW. All right. You know, it, it actually sounds like he believes what he's saying. I think he does. And Well, I, I think he doesn't because Eric Bischoff is actually a little bit smarter than that, I'd like to think. And uh, the fact of the matter is, I watched the whole interview. It said, uh, you know, like he said in, in the interview, the numbers don't lie. Well, our, our ratings don't lie when I'm on the when I'm on USA Network. Those numbers don't lie, and I don't brag about merchandise sales. But but the, while we're at it, let's while do it. we're at it, there no no one in, in WCW or, or in the WWF for that matter can can even touch me on that. So the numbers don't lie there either. As far as being a big fish in a small pond, anybody down in WCW will tell you whether they're down there making good money or not, that the World Wrestling Federation is the show. It is the big time. WCW is a place to stay around and, and get some work. But everybody knows, and, and Eric Bischoff knows too, that the World Wrestling Federation is the big time, and that's the bottom line. I, I don't know if he knows that, or if he does, he certainly didn't admit it on this show. Well, of course he's Just not. like Vince doesn't know that WCW um, has, at times, kicked his butt uh, across North America. But then wise. again, on that same interview, didn't Eric Bischoff say that they used to look forward to the ratings? And then it got to be, they're, they're beating us so much, that wasn't even fun anymore. Well, I think it's starting to get a lot, a lot more fun for him because the rating uh, race has been uh, pretty damn fun the last few weeks. And so, with the 5.7 we just set, you know, not too long ago, was the highest rating ever for wrestling. All right, there's no question that uh, we should point this out to an audience that, that may or may not know. WWF has uh, had a really good last little while. Uh, WrestleMania was the, the highest grossing uh, of all times pay-per-view. Right. Uh, highest rated show the past, uh, your last Raw uh, in the Vince McMahon, Steve Austin storyline. But I want to ask you, though, I want to go back to WCW and say, uh, you got a phone call, right, from Eric right. Bischoff when he was your employer. Right. What did he say to you on the Well, phone? you know, it, I was uh, recovering from a torn tricep I suffered over in Japan. And, uh, you know, the, the arm was healing up, and basically he told me... Uh, uh, based on the amount of days I've been incapacitated, based uh, on the amount of uh, days, on the amount of money they were paying me, that they were going to exercise their right to terminate the agreement. So I said, basically, you're telling me I'm fired. He goes, well, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. When you get well, maybe, you know, we can talk again. And, uh, you know, getting fired doesn't bother me at all. If I get fired tomorrow, that doesn't bother me. But, you know, I lived 30 miles from the CNN Center at the time. All you got to do is say, come down to the office, we need to talk. I just got pissed off that he fired me over the phone. I think it's a pretty lame thing to do to, to a person that works for you for four years. Right. He fired a guy, though, who was not a star, right, in WCW at the time. You're, I mean, there's no disputing. I mean, he, Eric Bischoff wouldn't even dispute it. You are a huge star right now. What is the difference? Why in WWF is uh, your persona so enormous, and back there you were just another guy? Well, it, it, was, a, it was a whole political thing. Uh, when uh, uh, Brian Pillman and myself formed the Hollywood Blondes, 
Uh, they saw how that was taken off, and it would have been uh, the hot. It was, at the time, it was the hottest tag team of all time, and it would have been would have been one of the best ever. And they shut that down for political reasons. So I never was given, you know, the platform down there that, I, that I've been given here in the, in the World Wrestling Federation. When uh, Vince McMahon uh, brought me up here, and I changed uh, the the name I had. Uh, in the beginning, the ringmaster to Stone Cold Steve Austin. Finally, he gave me that football, and when he did, I took off and ran with it. And I'm not dropping it, and I'm not giving it back because, you know, this is my opportunity, and I'm going to make the most of it. Hey, North Texas State University, your football right. player, weren't you? Right. What position? Uh, d uh, defensive end. Not a very good one? Damn good. Damn good? Not good enough to play pro ball, but uh, <laughs> enough to get a free education. Let me ask you then, uh, so as WWF, everything takes off, right. your character. But isn't it true, though, that you have a lot more leeway in WWF, um, that the family values idea of WCW would not permit you to give the finger, would not permit you to use the F word, in other words, that you use, that really do attract fans. So this is the right place for you. Uh, it's the right place for me. And, and you know, if I was still in that environment, I'd st I would still be just as popular. If I'd have started this whole thing down there, sure I wouldn't be able to go uh, as far to the edge as I have been on, you know, with the WWF. But there's no doubt, you know, uh, when, when Eric Bischoff, right before he fired me, I said, you know, whether I go to all Japan or wherever I go, I, I am going to be the best in the world. And that's exactly what happened. Anytime you put a limitation on me or tell me I can't do something, I'll prove you wrong every single time. That's just the way I was brought up. So, you know, going back to, uh, you know, what I do on the USA Network and uh, WWF has given Vince McMahon a few headaches and some gray, heart, gray hairs. And the same with, the, you know, the people at the USA Network. Uh, sometimes I guess they're not real happy with what I do or say. But what I do or say is something that everyone hears or sees every day of their life. It's really not that controversial a thing with me. I mean, that's the thing, what you just said. I'm listening to what you're saying. And I'm, I'm hearing stone cold in your voice as you sort of get excited by the subject. How, how close is... Um, Steve Austin, the guy that I met, we sat in the green room, talked about families and stuff like that, to the guy in the ring. That's the exact same thing, except sitting here three feet from you, you know, we're not, a, we're not in an audience, you know, where, where it's 20,000 people or 60,000 people, where I'm trying to project all the way to the back of that audience. So all I've done, you know, when I get on a Monday Night Raw or in a pay-per-view or whatever, in that situation, all I do is get that volume switch and turn it all the way up. But the, but the, the two people are actually the same person, because I don't believe that... Uh, you know, you can go out there, you can, you can be something other than what you are, but what I'm doing is being myself. And I think, uh, I guess that's why I'm so popular right now. Uh, all I'm doing is being myself. And I don't, you, you never really hear too many people say, eh, Steve Austin's okay, I kind of don't like him or kind of like him. Either you like me 100% or you don't like me, and that's pretty much cut and dried. Well, we've got to talk about the, uh, the new hardcore of wrestling. Uh, obviously, uh, you represent a lot of that and where it's going. And we'll do that when Off the Record returns. We'll be back with Cold Stone, All right, Steve Mike Austin. Tyson, that's Stone Cold. I'm sorry? Stone Cold. It doesn't make any difference right. one way yeah, or the other. It does. Right? It does. Right. It makes a big difference. Go ahead. Call me Landsberg Michael. Okay. Doesn't bother me a bit. Doesn't bother you? Yeah. It should. Uh, off the Record with Michael Landsberg is brought to you by the Keg Steakhouse and Bar. Like I told you before, I said it to someone else, I'll say it to you, DTA, don't trust anybody. Now what I want you to do is bow down for Stone Cold. That is, that's the definitive Steve Austin, right? Every working man's dream to punch their boss in the groin. Hey, it works for me. It works for me. It fit the situation. 
Mr. Mayne has a tendency to get on my nerves. Most of the time I talked to him right then, he tried to dress me up in a, in a suit and make me the corporate good guy. And then you know, I have to you know, reaffirm everything. That, 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 that's not going to happen with me. Uh, I go out there and I do and say whatever I want to do. And if he doesn't like me, you know, like I said, I've been fired before. I'm not afraid to get fired again. But I'm going to, you know, uh, when, when I had an accident, you know, about a year ago, got dropped on my head and almost got paralyzed. Uh, you know, I, I realized that, you know, this, this thing doesn't last forever. So, you know, whether I'm, long, whether I'm around for a long time or not, I'm damn sure going to have a good time while I'm here. Okay, well, let's talk about that. Um, you know, I got a lot I want to talk to you about the Vince McMahon thing, but you mentioned that uh, you got dropped in your head, pile driver by Owen Hart. Right. Uh, is there some animosity between you and he? Well, you Genuine. Right. I, like, not, not, I'm, not I'm, yeah, I'm telling you. Yeah, okay. You're damn right. When you talk about something as serious as that, you know, to lay in front of 20,000 people. Did uh, he screw be, up? you damn right he screwed up. What did he do? He dropped me flat on my head. As know, opposed to? Of, well, usually, you know, you, you suffer a little jolt out of that, but not anything like I did. And I uh, lay there in front of 20,000 people, not being able to move an arm or a leg. You know, you, you, I'm still pissed off at, you know, about you know, to this day. Uh, Didn't he come up with a T-shirt also that said? Uh, I think someone else came up with hard, a T-shirt. No, but a hard 316 and said, yeah, I, 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 broke I broke your neck, neck or something like that? Yeah, I thought that was a pretty cheap avenue to go. But, you know, that's the way the, sometimes the wrestling business is. But that so, is the way the wrestling business well, is. Well, I'm not going to sit here and whine and complain about it. It just goes with the territory. That's the way it goes. If you're going to whine and complain about everything, you know, that's what Bret Hart did, you know. He whined and complained uh, about. Yeah, you know, I was whining and complaining. You're in Bret Hart territory here, you know, Steve. Uh, I don't really care what, what territory I'm, I'm in. You know, what I'm did he want? I'm not going to cater to anybody. Like okay, I said, what I'm, I'm going to be myself. About? What's that? Vince McMahon, your boss, right. lied to Bret. No, I didn't. Yeah, he did. You he know did. why? You know how I know? Because he said know. on this show, I lied to Bret. Did he? Yeah, he did. He admitted. Well, that's just the way it goes, you know. Uh, he was there for 14 years, had a hell of a job, uh, didn't want to go with the, you know, with the flow, and uh, basically he got fired. Now, you can dress it up as anything you want, but to me, when, when I see why everything has happened, that's what, that's what happened. Business. That's the way it goes. It could happen to me. It could happen to anybody. What about the direction that the WWF is, is heading? It, it seems like there really are no rules. That the, the key is create storylines that people like, whether um, it... Uh, good example of the Generation X, and I guess... Uh, I mean, some of us, uh, parents, as you are a parent, would yeah. be offended by this. Oh, yeah. I, I can't say that I agree with everything the World Wrestling Federation does. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm not going to sit on a high horse and say everything I do is right, because I know with my sign language and my language, I, you know, a lot of people don't like me, but it seems like a lot of them do like me. But as far as, uh, you know, everything goes, I'm not really much for the, the, the sex stuff or the racism stuff on TV. Other than that, uh, everything's pretty much fair game. Nothing really bothers me. But once you get into those two areas, then I kind of start really getting turned off. It seems as though the fans have a hunger for aggression now that they didn't have in the past. Um, last weekend, wasn't there uh, in Unforgiving, uh, Kane set, uh, was set on fire by Undertaker? Right. right. Like, how far can this go? Well, I mean, he just got his arm got caught on fire. It can happen, you know, right? You know. Yeah, yeah, but you know, of course, you know, the, the guy's just fine. But uh, you know, I think that's just uh, it's 1998. Things have changed. I mean, not just in wrestling, but in everything. And uh, you know, you can't, you really can't name anything that really hasn't changed and gotten more aggressive. And, and you know, football players get bigger, stronger, faster. I mean, it's just everything. Everything keeps evolving. 
Now, I think you, you've got to draw a line with some of the issues you, you get into. I know Vince says that anything should be available for him to do that. And, and it's his company, so I guess that's, you know, that, that's He's the opinion. boss, and if you don't that, like it, right. then I guess you've got to move on. But you can't express your feelings to the boss. Well, well I guess you did with, with, with this right. show, right? Well, I mean, he never sat there and asked me, Steve, what do you think about this or that? You know, if he did, I'd tell him. I mean, he, like I said, he's not afraid of anybody, and I'm not afraid to give him my opinion. It doesn't bother me but in the least. do you think the fans' hunger for aggression, though, is, is uh, compromising your chances of staying healthy? I mean, they want more all the time, and there's a lot of guys yourself. Um, look at Sean Michaels there, and uh, he has severe back problems now, of course. Uh, Macho Man Savage, Buff Bagwell on live TV nearly broke his neck. Are they pushing you harder to do more, and therefore this is riskier business than it was? No, I mean, you know, like, uh, you know, you put yourself in certain positions, and uh, either good things or bad things can happen. Uh, you know, most time, of course, we'd like everything to be okay and to walk away and say that was pretty cool. Sometimes bad things happen. I would. It's not management saying, "Hey, you got to do this, you got to do that." It's guys, you know, being so hungry that when you when you, you crank up a pay per view or live TV, you know, you're out there. I think it's not only it, it's not. It wasn't my goal when I got in pro wrestling to be the second or third match every night. You know, and that's not knocking anybody who is the second or third match. But, you know, so anybody, the, the people you just named getting hurt, they had the same goal that I had. They want to go out there and steal the show. So they're turning up, you know, they're turning up the volume themselves. It's their intensity driving them to do these things. And that's the hunger and it's the price you pay to be on top. Isn't it true also that the, uh, the talent of some of the wrestlers is less now than it was, less prepared to be in the ring? You get a lot of guys who look great, great bodies, great physiques, a lot of guys who sound great but don't have the same technique and don't have the same background that you have. A guy like Ahmed Johnson, for instance. Oh, well, you know, a lot of guys, you know, when, when I broke in, I started, I paid my dues, and then, you know, for a year and a half there, and a lot of guys, you know, pay the dues for a hell of a lot longer than I had to. And you, you got to learn, you know, there, there's really no formal education. You don't get a, a degree. Someone says, okay, you're now ready to go out there and do it. Well, hell, you go out there, and you, you might get in a ring with someone who doesn't know nothing. And so you're compromising your health right there. Uh, so you know, maybe you know, maybe some steps should be done to you know to try to get people to be a little bit safer. But that's just the, that's just the facts. That's just the way it is, you know. And tell a guy, okay, so you're gonna give me a pile driver? Hell, you might not have give not give anybody a pile driver before. <laughs> I'm thinking you're probably not a big fan of Bill Goldberg's, are you? Probably no, not. I don't have any problem with Bill Goldberg. No, no I haven't seen copy of you. Well, you know, like what they say, uh, invitation is the most sincere form of flattery. Or something to that degree. Well, I'm not, yeah. We're going to take so, a commercial uh, break and maybe I'll shave my head and imitate would you. Would you? Um, probably not. Well, that you Anybody who knows me, <laughs> chances are they're thinking he ain't shaving his hair. We will take a break and talk about a very serious subject. Your good friend Brian Pillman went off the record returns. Well, that is the uh, stunner, and there have been uh, times in the show when I've actually agreed to do some wrestling moves with some of the guys. Right. I put in the sharpshooter with Bret Hart. Right. Um, there will be no stunner on the show. No, no stunner on no the show. On the I, show. You know, if you wanted to finish the show, you know, it probably wouldn't be good for you because you wouldn't be talking or singing or doing anything like that. They'd probably do that little deal where they wrap your little jaw up. Really, you wouldn't feel too good if I did it to you. Little I jaw. promise you. Yeah. yeah. Right. I, I, I don't doubt that for a yeah. second. 
No hard feelings. Mess up yet. Mess I thought up maybe you'd fall for it no. for a second time. No, okay, I'll try to give you the benefit of the doubt let, there, but let, nothing. Let me get serious, though, and, and your friend Brian Pillman. And your careers, obviously, you were together um, as a tag team duo. Uh, WCW, uh, WWF, your careers paralleled one another. Um, I, I want to ask you, you, you haven't spoken publicly about Brian Pillman that much. Uh, your reaction to his death? Oh, you know, uh, it just... Well, we were at a pay-per-view that day when uh, all of a sudden the news came out that Brian was dead. I mean, it was, it was something that I really couldn't believe happened. And everybody always says, well, it didn't really sink in. It didn't. Until uh, a few nights later, we told the bell on uh, Monday Night Raw, and it pretty much, you know, shook me up. And uh, Brian was someone I met down in WCW at uh, TV taping. And uh, he came up to me, and they were fixing to put me with Harley Race and give me a good shove as U.S. champion. And he says, Steve, we need to come up with a finishing move. We're a tag team now. And I said, what the hell are you talking about? And, uh, you know, it was just an interim tag team. We turned into the Hollywood Blondes. And uh, me and Brian, you know, in wrestling, I guess, in a lot of entertainment-type things, you really don't make any close friends because everybody's out there to stab you in the back. But Brian was one of the guys that uh, he always called me at the house and always called him. We, we got to be extra, you know, the best friend I ever had in wrestling. And then uh, when, when he died, it's, you know, something that uh, is too bad. Brian had uh, you know, a lot of throat problems. He had his ankle fused. Um, his health, he was in bad shape uh, health-wise. You know, that's personal problems at his house, I guess. And uh, I guess everything caught up with him, and he, he had a heart condition on top of that. And that was the, the legal cause of his death, was a heart condition. He died in his hotel room, and it's just uh, you know, a real sad thing uh, for someone of Brian's intelligence, one of the smartest guys I ever knew, for something like that to happen. And not a, not a day goes by that I, that I honestly don't think about Brian, and I miss him. You know? Brett Hart said on the show that uh, he wasn't close friends with him, but he, he considered him a friend, and he said that he felt somewhat guilty because um, he said people knew that he was struggling with his life. Uh, do you feel any guilt? No, you know, it's always that, it's always that question of saying, you know, you wonder if you, you would have took him aside and said, man, is there anything I can do or what's going on? But the way I knew Brian, I mean, Brian, you know, during the daytime, I mean, he was, he was a, the proudest guy. And, you know, he was, he was a strong, tough guy. He wasn't going to say that he had problems or this or that. He might whine or complain just, just in a sentence or two. But he, he, he didn't look for sympathy, and he didn't want it. You know, he, he was a very headstrong person. He wanted to do his own thing, and he always did. You know, he, he lived his life 100 miles an hour and had a great time. And, and just at the end, everything caught up with him, and it was a bad time. And like I said, I guess he had some problems at the house. Uh, and everything just caught up with Brian. But I, you can, I, I'm not, I don't feel guilty about it at all. You know, Brian, Brian went away, and I don't think there was anything that was going to change that. I guess it was just time. Do you think wrestling uh, contributed much to his death? Well, I think life contributed to his death. You know, I think it was just Brian was uh, 34, 35 years old with the heart problem and all that, and uh, all the pain he was he was in, and you know, from from the car wreck and everything. It was just, uh, you know, it was just, just something that happened. Brian Pillman, a good friend of Stone Cold Steve Austin, and uh, we have more to talk about. I want to get your impressions on some of uh, the current guys that you're wrestling with and some guys from the past, and we'll do that when Off the Record returns. And we always invite your response. Hey, we responded to your request for this guy. Here's our addresses that you can reach us at. You can get us in any number of ways. There's our website, our email, and fax us again. Back with more with Stone Cold Steve Austin in a moment. Name of the show is Off the Record. This is Stone Cold Steve Austin in demand for our show. Uh, thousands of requests, and uh, we got questions to ask you, and a couple of them actually pertain to me. I I'm a tad concerned about this. Here's a sampling of what we received. You can give a comment. Stone Cold, what's your feel on Landsberg? Feel free to do to him what you did to Vince at Unforgiven. Well, if you pissed me off enough, I would wrap a chair around your head and do whatever I felt necessary, but I'm, I'm trying to be 
civilized guest here on the show. And you're doing a good job yeah. of it. And yeah, you know, I'll have to say, a little bit intimidated as well, I think you are. Landsberg always seems am. to have the need to display his manhood by having guys such as yourself apply finishing holds on him during the final segment of the shows. If you'd like to get your hands on him, give the viewing audience a what? I give him a hell yeah. Okay. <laughs> Keep your hands off me, okay? All right. All right. Let me let me throw out uh, a couple of names in a moment. Word association. We played it with Vince, and it was a lot of fun. But you have uh, a big match coming up at Skydome, May the 23rd. You're going to face Hunter Hurst Helmsley, and the referee, we've just learned, is going to be Vince McMahon. <laughs> What's the deal? I think that's the biggest bunch of crap I ever heard because, you know, Vince McMahon has done everything so far that he can't that he can think of to try to get that belt off of me, and, and uh, I'm his worst nightmare. So the fact that he's going to come up here to Toronto and try to, I, you know, it, there's no way he's going to call it down the middle, I'll tell you that for right right now. And uh, Hunter Hearst Helmsley on his own is tough enough, yeah. but if you're going to put Vince McMahon in there, okay, so I'm probably going to beat his approve. ass. Okay, yeah. all right. Let me throw out some names. Uh, give me one line, one comment, whatever. Uh, Hulk Hogan. Uh, he was very successful, but I don't really don't. Best like there ever was? No, not even close. No, that's Bret Hart. Sorry, best there was. Best no, there. not even him. No, who is? But but they're both highly successful. I get right. who is the best there ever was? Wrestler, greatest wrestler in history. Uh, one of one of the people I most enjoyed being in the ring with. It, Bret Hart was one of them. Uh, Ricky Steamboat. Cool. Yeah. Sable. Uh, chick. <laughs> I just wish I was Steve Austin and I could do those things. Diamond Dallas Page. He's actually a friend of mine. I have very few of them, but he's actually a friend of mine. He's a very hard worker. Are any of your friends women, by the way? Very successful. He's done very well for himself. Shawn Michaels. Extremely talented. Kind of started crying there a little bit at the end. Hopefully get his act together, get his health together, and come back to WWF. Al Snow. Uh... Uh, right, right now, what he's doing, he might have a chance to actually do some good with it. He's got a uh, pretty new gimmick with his head thing, and uh, uh, actually, it's pretty damn cool. We'll see what happens with it. He's in the ECW, of course. Yes, he Mike is. Mike Tyson. Uh, it was uh, a lot of fun working with Mike. Uh, I'd still like to fight Mike Tyson. If he ever gets cleared or whatever, I want to uh, wrestle him, I want to box him. You think you'll work with him again? I'd like to see it happen. They pay him too much, or was it worthwhile? Hey, you know, he's uh, the king of pay-per-view. You Rick, know? Rick Flair? Uh, one time, he was great. Well, it's time to hang it up. Vince McMahon. Pretty damn close to being a genius. A hell of a promoter. Do I like him? Do we see eye to eye? No. But I, you know, I, give, I give credit where credit's due. He's pretty damn smart. Well, before we go, I tried to <sighs> anger you. They told me I had to do this. You know, Regis did this stuff, and, and I let it go. But well, if you're, well, gonna, you're starting well, to piss me off. No, no, it's no. Austin it's Austin 316. Well, it, what does Landsberg 316 mean? What? What does Landsberg 316 mean? That just it means that just, on this show, I rule. We're out of time. Thanks for joining us, okay? I'm a little sick of this. Ain't no way you rule, because Stone Cold Steve Austin rules. 1999, the highest... Rated episode of Monday Night Raw in its history. 8.1 rating. Insane. When you actually dissect those numbers even further and realize that almost 10 million viewers tuned in that night, the Rock, Austin, and Vince versus Undertaker, Triple H, and Shane McMahon match did almost a 9.2 rating. It's insane. You just realize how huge wrestling was at that time and sadly how it's gone down quite a bit. Now, yes, wrestling has obviously branched out into a lot of different forms of entertainment. It's not just the in-ring product and the pay-per-view. But still, when you go back and you realize that this time in 99, they were doing those kind of numbers, it's ridiculous. It's just 
unbelievable. And if you look at the matches, you break down the matches that night, you know, yes, the main event itself, you know, had all the names that it needed to, and it's the big draw, but you look at the undercard, and, you know, some people might find some of it kind of questionable. Billy Gunn and Kane fought to a no contest. Big Show and Paul Bearer fought to a no contest. Deborah defeated Sable via reverse decision in an evening gown match to win the women's title. And I think it was Nicole Bass who stripped Deborah. It was just confusing. And yeah, at that time, they were doing it to write Sable off TV and shit like that, but still, wasn't all that great. Boss Man over Test and a nightstick on a pole match. Cactus Jack over Viscera and Midian in a handicapped hardcore match. Bradshaw and Farouk fought each other to a no contest. Patterson and Briscoe defeated the Mean Street Posse in a Loser Leaves WWF match. Jeff Jarrett over Val Venus. Ken Shamrock and China fought to a no contest in the main event, as I said earlier. Austin, Iraq, and McMahon, Vince McMahon, over the corporate ministry of Undertaker, Triple H, and Shane McMahon. Shawn Michaels was the guest referee, I might add. So, big deal. Speaking of big deal for that week, and trust me, this was a big effort deal. Um, U.S. News and World Report. Very important business magazine. You know, it's it's still out, but I think it's mostly digital now. But back in 1999, that week, they did a major article about Vince McMahon, WWF, and pro wrestling. They made the cover. They did like a six or a seven-page spread on the WWF product. You know, obviously, you know, some of the uh, report was gushing and, you know, just about it being big business, but still... To have that kind of press and exposure at that time, you add in the fact what I had just said about having the biggest rated episode of Raw ever, WWE was on so much momentum in 1999, and they were still, you know, a little less than two years away from the Monday Night Wars ending. So this was still right heated in the Monday Night Wars. Now, talk about negative publicity at this time. Talk about the opposite. And I've talked about this video in the past. I have it still saved, boxed away in my collection. I don't know if it's worth anything. I'm not interested in actually watching it again. But I remember when the news came out about it, I said, oh, I got to get this video. I'm curious to see what it's all about. Then I remember at that time it going on eBay for like 100 bucks a clip. And it's like, I ain't spending, I think I paid like $18 for it. I have two copies. One is sealed and one's not. And neither is sticky. Uh, you might remember a valet in ECW who ultimately went to WCW along with hardcore hack, Chastity. Remember the short blonde-haired chick? You know, she was WCW valet. Well, she was in a, a X-rated video called Live Bait, and uh, she was part of an oral sex segment. Her and a, was it another girl or two girls? I think, it was, no, it was just her and another girl. They were both giving some guy a blowjob. Now, the entire video, from what I remember of it, is basically just from, like, looking at, like, the uh, the guy's point of view of the segment. Like, you never see his face. You don't see his whole body. There's just one camera angle, and it zoomed right into their faces, and that's basically what you see. I think she was topless at the time. I don't know if she was bottomless as well. Like I said, I haven't watched this video in about almost 20 years. But still, think about it in context. You got this week in 1999... WWF having its biggest rating ever, being featured big time in the U.S. News and World Report. Then you go to the flip side with WCW and TV Guide, local papers, other places, the big buzz. 
about their valet chastity being in an X-rated video. It was unbelievable at the time the amount of press that was being directed towards chastity. And look, it was a, what, if I remember, five to eight minute clip, video clip. It's just, an, it's oral sex. You know, it wasn't like, uh, like, it's not like anything controversial about the segment. And Chastity, as far as valets and in the world of pro wrestling goes, she herself will even tell you, you know, she wasn't anything big. And you hear her name ever mentioned in conventions for the most part. I'm sure she's made appearances here and there. But at that time, because wrestling was such a buzz and getting the crazy ratings, you know, you think about the fact that WWF got an 8.1. Remember, the WCW is still on TV. So, you know, maybe not every week they opposed each other. But you take, you know, an average seven rating for WWF and a two, three rating for WCW. That's like nine, 10, 11 rating for wrestling on a Monday night. That's crazy. So anything affiliated with wrestling at that time was going to get inflated. And this buzz around chastity being in live bait it was just amazing at that time. And for the people that ask, I think these articles are probably why I bought the video. Because, you know, ECW fans knew about her appearance in the video for a while. But I think because of that, I, I was curious at the time. Okay, I got to see what this video is about. Got to see if there's any contro anything controversial in there while she's getting all this press. And, you know, it was what it was. 2000, Monday Nitro and Thunder. Miss Elizabeth, God rest her soul. She has the first two and only two matches in her wrestling career. And officially, she is 2-0. On Monday Nitro, she defeated Daphne in about 40 seconds by DQ. And on Thunder, she defeated Rhonda Singh. You know, no, no small feat. Big deal. 2-0, Miss Elizabeth, this week in 2000. Also in 2000, ECW had the Hardcore Heaven event. And the reason why I mention it, Lance Storm uh, wrestled and lost to Just Incredible in a match for the ECW Heavyweight title. This was Lance Storm's final match in ECW. Right after this, he left to go to WCW. Now, I talked about this briefly on the May 9th, 2018 episode of Breakfast of Blossy. Has to do with a uh, guy who used to have a wrestling hotline in the 90s especially. And I'm not going to get into the entire story here. If you want to hear the very detailed behind-the-scenes story involving this guy, tune into that episode of Breakfast with Blasi. But it was this week in 2000 that former wrestling hotline host, now convicted child molester, pedophile, uh, Jim Thompson, who you knew more as Ebel Curley, was sentenced to prison. I'll give you a little quick backdrop about this. I started doing wrestling hotlines in 1997. I officially started in 98 because in 97, I was just basically practicing, getting used to it, listening to myself, trying to correct certain things, growing thick skin. You absolutely have to have thick skin, whether you're doing a hotline, a podcast, anything. And it's sad. You go online and look, I could throw out a, do a dozen names right now and I'm not going to do it specifically to anybody. I don't want to hurt their feelings, but you are intelligent enough to hear it. There are people who are doing podcasts for years that still have extremely thin skin. You say one little bit of criticism about them. You say just they just totally lose it. Totally fucking lose it. But anyway, my hotline really took off in 99. 
1999, my wrestling hotline was the most listened to wrestling hotline in the United States. And there was a very famous hotline guy at the time. His name is Blackjack Brown. He was also a cameraman, did a lot of WWF events. And he also worked with someone who was a great hotline guy at the time as well. King Jordan, they used to have 900 numbers. They had approached me in 1999 to do a 900 number, which I ultimately ended up not doing. I didn't want people to pay money to hear me give analysis or read news and stuff like that. I just did, I just felt funny. And I know it sounds very like, wow, DT, straight up, good guy. No, it wasn't about that. I was just, I think maybe subconsciously I was afraid that I wasn't going to live up to expectations and who the fuck wants to feel like they wasted money listening to me. So I didn't do it. But at that time, I used to get messages from this guy named ML Curley. He did a wrestling hotline in Detroit, also was a sports writer for a Detroit newspaper, and he used to always give me praise. Hey, you know, when are you going to come on my hotline? And great job, and this and that, and trying to, like, have conversation. Now, at that time, you know, I'm not that old. I'm in my, you know, 20s, you know, early and mid-20s. And here's this guy, mid-20s, here's this guy trying to get my attention. And I just thought he was creepy and weird. He sounded weird, and I just didn't want to buy it. At that time, I used to make fun of every hotline. Anybody goes back with me back that time, I used to joke about it. Remember the weakest mark? Did an awards, making fun of every hotline. You are the weakest mark. And we would play clips of how terrible they were. But ML Curl was just a whack job. And in 99, after Blackjack Brown and King Jordan offered me to do a 900 number, which I turned down, ML Curly wanted to get involved and do it with all four of us. We didn't do it. So then in 2000, this week, he gets convicted and ends up serving 16 years prison for child molestation, sexual abuse, rumored to be with over 100 boys. It's amazing how this wasn't a tremendous, gigantic, unbelievable story in 2000. So many tabloid places you would think would have covered this. Now, in this era, yeah, it would have been big-time news everywhere. But they basically uh, say that this guy molested over 100 boys. In fact, from reading the old stories, he claimed that over 35 years, he had some type of interaction with over 1,000 boys. Now, I don't know if he was trying to be like Will Chamberlain and bragging about it, but this guy was sick. They threw him in jail. He served 16 years. So it was this week in 2000 that he was convicted for all these counts of uh, abuse. Now, to go one step further in doing research for this story, for the show, I was researching the case, researching what he was convicted for, some of the old stories, some of them you have to actually go into like digital archives from like uh, government sites that they archive a lot of news stories. It was not easy to get all the stuff, but what I ended up finding out about ML Curley is that apparently he's now dead. He was released from prison in 2016. And I can't remember if he moved to Texas or if he moved to, no, you know what? I, I, it's either Texas or Michigan. But after he was released, he had to register as a sex offender. He moved to either Texas or Michigan. I can't remember which one. I don't have the info in front of me. But then when you register on a, on a sex offender registry, you stay on there. And the only two reasons why you're taken off of it is, number one, you're back in jail, or number two, you die. And sometime in 2017, he was removed from the sex offender registry. 
And from doing my research with courts, criminal, civil, all this other, he's not in prison. And, you know, I actually found a website, you know, many years ago where you could actually get like death record information and stuff like that. So I haven't gotten the info back yet on ML Curley. And honestly, I really don't care. The bottom line is just to let everyone know that it appears that this pedophile dropped dead in 2017. 2001, Vince McMahon and Dick Ebersole this week officially announced that XFL is folded. You know, look, it lasted a year. They did lose $140 million. But, you know, as I think a lot of people seem to forget, you know, the XFL was not the first football league to fold. In the 40s, you had the All-American Conference that only lasted about three years. Who could ever forget the World League football? You know, we were too young to know what it was about in the 70s, but that only lasted for about a year. And the USFL, which I know a lot of you out there remember, that only lasted about two years. So, you know, especially the USFL, because a lot of players did come from there. We didn't, oh, what was his name? Doug Flutie. That's who it was, Doug Flutie. And, you know, I will admit, I paused the show and I looked it up. But Doug Flutie, I remember him coming out of USFL more than anybody else. So, look, it's not the first time that a football league folded, very short amount of time. But still, it was a big deal. You know, Vince McMahon, big entertainment company. But believe me, you look at the numbers WWE makes now, you know, he's doing very, very well. And XFL, you know, who knows if it's what its future is going to be. So now we get to another audio clip. 2002, I'll just set this up. Uh, We had the debut of one of the biggest wrestlers over the last two decades. Um, Batista makes his WWE debut. Now, you look back on it, you know, yeah, he looks a little bit different. Yes, he looks goofy holding the box, but he still, if you pay attention to interviews, does show love to Devon. And they tried to take chicken shit and turn it to chicken salad. And I thought they did an okay job, even though I will admit I never, ever liked the Deacon Batista character. Never liked it, but still it was this week in 2002 on SmackDown. Batista makes his main roster debut as Deacon Batista, who is holding the collection box, protecting it. For Reverend Devon, who I think a lot of people may forget, was the quote-unquote spiritual advisor for Vince McMahon at that time. So now, I'm not going to play the match that Devon had with Triple H. And by the way, Devon did win that match. But I'll play the opening intro of how Batista was introduced to the WWE Universe back in 2002. Oh, brothers and sisters. Oh, I've got tonight's sermon in hand, oh testify, you see, yay, though I walk through this place of sinners, I fear no temptation, oh no I don't, because you see brothers and sisters, Reverend Devon is a righteous man, ha, oh, I am a man with great joy, And I know that when a good man above smiles upon me, he'll be smiling because I tried to help you sinners 
and backsliding people. Backsliders. But long and behold, brothers and sisters, there has been another follower. That's right. This follower will be here to protect the Devon Building Fund. That's right. I want everybody to get up out of your seats. Put your hands together for Deacon Batista. Look at the sun. You must have some good gyms in church, huh? Jeez. Now, Deacon, keep one eye on the box as well as the other eye on the ring because Brother Devon is about to beat the sin out of Triple H. Also in 2002, cannot put the audio here. You have to watch it. Because if I put the audio, all you're going to hear is a motorcycle, you're going to hear some of the commentators, and you're going to hear grunting from Hulk Hogan. You have to watch it for the full effect. And yeah, for the wrong reasons, it's funny. One of, you know, people have asked me over the years, what are some of the funnier or moments in WWE history or wrestling history that was not meant to be funny that was? This is on the top of the list. Maybe not number one, but very close to it. Hogan wrestled Ric Flair on Raw this week in 02. And Hogan brought back the red and yellow. He's been Hollywood Hulk Hogan. In fact, if I remember that night, Lillian Garcia still announced him as Hollywood Hulk Hogan, and he was wearing the red and yellow. And I think he was still coming out to his his other music, not Real American. So anyway, after his match with Ric Flair, Coach is interviewing him backstage. Hogan gets attacked by The Undertaker. And Hogan is wearing this goofy-looking helmet, and at that time, you're like, you're looking at it and you're like, okay, there's got to be some goofy reason why he's wearing this fucking helmet. Undertaker attacks him, and while Hogan is laid out, Undertaker is hogtying Hogan by his ankles. And then you see that the rope is attached to the motorcycle, so you know that Undertaker is going to be dragging Hogan with the motorcycle. Now, is it going to be like a bad Benny Hill segment is or is it going to be like an inflatable doll is it going to be like a mannequin or is this really going to be hogan and it ended up being hogan hog tied to the motorcycle and you go back on it it's funny i can't stop laughing it just you see the long distance shots of the motorcycle going down the hallway and Hogan just, like, <laughs> it's funny shit. But when you really go back and look at it, there were a couple of times where he could have taken a really bad shot just from one, you know, the you know just because you're riding straight with the motorcycle doesn't mean that the rope and the person tied behind you is going to go straight in as an arrow as well. You hit a little bump here and there, and you can fucking go, you know, it's not just a face plant. You got the momentum of a motorcycle going Whatever it is, 10 miles an hour, five, whatever it is, five miles, it's still, something could have gone tremendously wrong. So obviously the helmet was needed, but still a funny, funny segment. You have to go wide. If you've never seen it, man, you missed out on some funny, funny shit at this time. Go check it out. This week, 2002. Another important moment in 2002, in-demand pay-per-view and J Sports Entertainment issued a press release And they announced a joint venture on a new wrestling promotion. And this promotion would be the NWA's new top wrestling affiliate, Total Nonstop Action Wrestling. 
So we had the press release in 2002 announcing the creation of NWA Total Nonstop Action. They talked about how it was going to be weekly pay-per-views. A lot of criticism at that time, and honestly, deservingly so, because, you know, we're still in a big, you know, moment in wrestling history as far as popularity goes. But this is 2002. Monday Night Wars were over. Invasion Angle was over. And it was hard to get people to pay that kind of money. And you think about it. You're going to spend $40 a month just to follow a wrestling product, like be forced to spend money in order to follow a wrestling product. And ultimately, look, this just covers wrestling histories and not covering just analysis as well. But you go back and you look at it, you really dissect how many pay-per-view buys they needed to just break even every week. And they weren't even hitting that. I, I think, I don't know if the break-even number was 40,000, 50,000, or 70,000 pay-per-views. But when you look at WWE's numbers at that time and realize that they weren't even getting, in some cases, 40,000 pay-per-view buys, it was a gr nice idea on paper. I just think forcing people to pay for every bit of a wrestling promotion was hard to do. And, you know, it, but still, I mean, TNA in some form is still around. Impact Wrestling is what it is today. TNA is obviously no longer but still, a big moment in wrestling history, 2002, announcing the creation of uh, NWA TNA. Now we go to 2003. Originally, I wasn't going to play this audio clip, but I watched it again and the crowd reaction and how cool it was and then how sad it was at the same time to realize that the return of the Road Warriors, LOD, in WWE 2003, ended up being a one-shot deal. Five months later, Road Warrior Hawk would pass away. So when you look at that, it's just a real, you know, sobering moment. And I'll share with you now. 2003, Rob, uh, let me set this up a little bit. Rob Van Dam and Kane are your tag team champions. Steve Austin and Eric Bischoff are the co-GMs of Raw. So Eric Bischoff basically tells Kane and RVD that he has hand-selected a tag team to face them. For, those, for the tag titles, and we got the surprise return of the LOD. You watch the match. It's sad because the match only lasted three minutes. Fuck, it sucked that it was that short, but they physically looked good. Um, yeah, they were definitely slower than before, um, but to realize that you know they were only in for that one appearance, and then five months later, Hawk would be deceased. It's really sad to look back on it, but here you go. This is how it went down this week, 2003. If you remember correctly, last week I said that I was going to raise the bar here tonight. And I wasn't talking about the beer you'd find at the bar. No. As a matter of fact, as luck would have it, I was thinking about RVD and, and Kane here. So what I've decided to do is to sign a match where RVD and Kane will defend their tag team championships here tonight. Uh-oh. Here tonight. That's good. Against a team that they've never faced before. Never faced? What is that? A team that maybe one of the best, if not the best, 
tag team in the history of our industry. What are you talking about, JR? <laughs> what? Oh, wait a minute. You gotta be kidding me. Oh my God! It's a legend of doom. It's Hulk and Animal. Where did these guys come from? Well, Bischoff is damn sure true to his word because he has raised the bar. And what a surprise! The veterans, Hulk and Animal, the Legion of Doom, have apparently been signed by General Manager Bischoff, and they're getting a World Tag Team title shot here and now. What else is going to happen here tonight, JR? Look at the look on, on RVD's face. Dude, have you ever seen the Legion of Doom before? Hawk and Animal, who really redefined tag team wrestling when they first got in the business in the 80s. Is this happening right now? And the tag team titles are on the line? The bell is rung, the match is underway, and the world tag team titles are at stake. Rob Van Dam and Kane defending against the veteran legendary team of Hawk and Animal, the Road Warriors, the Legion of Doom. Hawk and Animal don't care how educated your feet are. They'll pick you up by your feet and throw you out to about the sixth row ringside. Look out. Hawk and Animal looking for an opportunity. Perhaps a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get right in the title hunt to become the tag team champions once again. Arm rigger applied by, by Hawk or Animal and Hawk gets the tag. King, this is a tag team that over the years has made their mark on in many areas of the world and they're with their tag team oh, abilities. Nice kick knocked down by RVD, taking down Hulk of the Legion of Doom. Well, you can call them Legion of Doom. These guys are like legends of Doom. You're right, they are. They have been all over the world. They've beaten every tag team on demand. And they may be our new tag team champions right here in the WWE. Nice neck record by Hulk. And uh, the Legion of Doom. I so many of their, of their great matches in their in their younger days, but they're here now. They look to be in, in game shape, and, and King gets the tag. And King now manhandling off of those clotheslines and a reverse elbow on Animal. Kane, the legal man. Uh-oh. Hooking up Hawk. 
Upstairs! And a choke slam! And Van Dam man up top! The tag title on the line! A five-star frog splash by Van Dam! The hook of the leg! Will it be? Yes, it is! Van Dam and King retain! said he was going to raise the bar. He did that with the surprise appearance of the Legion of Doom. But take a look at Van Damme. He, he ducked disaster. Yeah, you're right there. The Rock, I keep wanting to call the Rock Warriors. The Legion of Doom has won a million matches with that very move right there. But Rob Van Damme has pulled up many opponents with that five-star frog flash. But no time to prepare for the Legion of Doom. Kane and RVD win it. And they're both are Kane and RVD. Sunday. 2004, some additional sad news. John Tenta, who you most knew as Earthquake in the WWF days, he was forced into retirement because he was battling bladder cancer. And sadly, about two years later, he had passed away because of it. I think he was only around 40 years old at this time in 04. Because, yeah, he was 40 or 41. Because when he died, he was 43. So, you know, to realize that he was forced into retirement battling bladder cancer at 41, really sad, man. It really is. Same year, 2004, only two years after this. It's, you know, you look back on it, a lot of things happened in TNA's business history this week. 2002, you had the creation of NWA TNA. 2004, which I'm going to get into right now, that TNA announced in a press release that they were going to be moving the weekly TV series as far as pay-per-views to Fox Sportsnet in June. And does anybody remember the horrible, horrible time slot that they got originally? TNA goes from weekly pay-per-views to Fox Sportsnet 3 p.m. on Fridays. Not, not that great. <laughs> not that great. And then, obviously, not too long after that, I think they only lasted about 50 episodes, um, their deal would expire, and they would obviously have to hold out until they got the deal with Spike TV. That didn't last all that long as well. And as you'll hear later on, there was another moment in TNA history, business-wise, when we get to it, it actually had to do with, uh, you know, just people part. In, in fact, I remember it was NWA leaving TNA entirely. So we'll get that up to that in a moment. And something else in TNA's history, which I thought was one of the most uncomfortable things to ever watch on TV. Anyway, 2005, Amazing Red and uh, CM Punk. They got tryout matches for WWE. I don't remember if CM Punk actually, if it was a tryout match as well. I think it was. I think the big buzz at that time was Amazing Red and Punk both getting tryout matches. WWE signed Punk. They did not sign Amazing Red. I think that's how it went down. Um, so that happened this week in 2005. This same week in 05, t tickets for ECW's One Night Stand went on sale. They sold out in a couple of hours. Very, very uh, popular event to this day happening at the Hammerstein Ballroom and uh you know they sold out almost instantly I mean within a few hours tickets were gone 2006 the infamous fight between Batista and Booker T took place they were filming a commercial for the upcoming SummerSlam pay-per-view and they ended up having some fisticuffs you know things would you know cool down after that but still a moment to mention 
Also in 2006, Cody Rhodes makes his pro wrestling debut. Furthest or the, the, the closest I could find as far as his uh, first match or near it, he wrestled for OVW in Louisville. He wrestled under his name, Cody Reynolds. And he teamed up with Chet the Jet Jablonski, I believe his name was, Casey James, Mo Sexton, and Roadkill. And they defeated Pat Buck, Jack Bull, Raheem, and Deuce and Domino. So there you go. 2007, another audio clip for everyone out there. Let me set this up a little bit. You had The Undertaker and Batista fight in a steel cage for the heavyweight title. This was the controversial match where they both were climbing out the cage both feet hit the floor. They showed us on TV numerous replays. It was a split screen, and both feet hit the floor perfectly. Couldn't have done it any better. Now, on the surface, you're like, wow, give fucking Batista and Undertaker credit. How could they pull that off? Then you realize you got to give the production people credit. There was about a two-minute gap between the finish and shown the replay on TV. The reason why it took them a couple of minutes is because when they did the split screen, they had to sync up Undertaker's feet hitting the floor with Batista's. And if you actually look very closely to the left split screen of Batista's feet hitting the floor, you could actually see Undertaker's leg or his foot in the background. And you could see that it doesn't sync exactly perfectly. So, you know, go, go, you could go see it, but that's actually not why I have an audio clip for you now. The match ended, and what a lot of people did not know is that at that time, Undertaker had suffered a torn bicep. He was going to be out of action for you know, four or five months, if I remember correctly. So they had to write The Undertaker off of TV. So, how do you write Undertaker off TV? if he just retained the title against Batista? Well, you have someone cashing in Money in the Bank briefcase. touch the floor at the same time. Therefore, this match is a draw. Now, in all cases, a tie goes to the champion. Therefore, still the World Heavyweight Champion, The Undertaker. Well, there you have it, John. I mean, honestly, I think I've got to agree with the officials after watching replay after replay, but it's a damn shame the matchup where both of these men put their bodies on the line into that way. In the end, hey, Mark Henry, the world's strongest man, assaulting the champion. Right hands off the, the skull of the champion. Mark Henry said he was going to return and make an impact. He's the world's strongest man. Oh, what are you going to do about it? And Henry is targeting the open wound of the Undertaker. And the champion, whatever was left of the Undertaker, is being destroyed right now. 
Undertaker is helpless. Undertaker-driven spine first to the post. Has absolutely no clue, John, where he is. Completely defenseless. He's got that hurt arm. He's got that busted up head. Undertaker is a sitting duck right now for the world's strongest man. Mark Henry put the locker room on notice. And what a way to do that by taking out the champion. Remember, Mark Henry put out Benoit, Mysterio, Batista. He's about to add one more champion oh! to his list. This is unfair. This is unfair. The Undertaker has been decimated after a steel cage match. And he is being destroyed by Mark Henry, who has no business being out here. This is ridiculous. This is a travesty. The Undertaker is motionless. He said he wanted to make an impact, Michael. And he said there wasn't anything anybody could do about it. You've got to be kidding me. No. No, come on, Edge. No, not this way. No, damn it. No! No! shark that smells blood in the water, Michael. He's become world champion like this before, and I don't care how many times The Undertaker sits up. He's got nothing left. Undertaker can't even pull himself up by the ropes. He is a beaten, defenseless, helpless champion in that piranha. As much as you don't like it, Michael, this is a brilliant, brilliant move by Edge. That sick piranha. That piranha Edge is measuring The Undertaker. He's a piranha that could be our next world champion. The cover, not this way, not this way, damn it!
ultimate opportunist has done it again. This is the second time he's won a world championship like this, Michael. And I don't care how disgusted you are. Sometimes you win by attrition. But what is important is you win. Right there, Michael, is our new world champion, Edge. I can, I'm still trying to, to get it all straight in my mind. I mean, it's shocking. It is startling. Edge is... same year, this is what I was mentioning earlier, NWA ended their relationship with TNA Wrestling, effective immediately. And look, the, the split had been reported a couple of months earlier, but this was the official release between the two. They ended their relationship. TNA would go on its own. I remember this clearly because I think this was right around the time that Christian was the champion. And we know Christian in later interviews doesn't acknowledge this title, which I think is, you know, wrong to do. You know, winning a heavyweight title should be important no matter what federation you work for. But, you know, still, it was a big deal in 07. NWA ends its relationship with TNA. So now we go to 2008. For me, one of the most uncomfortable moments I've ever seen in wrestling. And trust me, it's not at the week of heart. You just felt so fucking bad for Roxy in TNA. Um, she got her head shaved in a match uh, that took place at their Sacrifice pay-per-view in 2008. Now, the audio clip that I'm going to play is not of her head being shaved. If I played that, you would just hear Don West feeling a little awkward. The fans chanting bullshit. The fans were not into this at all. And I just thought the whole segment of her getting her head shaved was just wrong. <laughs> it really They should have improvised. But let me set this up a little bit first. Because originally it was a little confusing, but then it wasn't confusing. And then TNA happened to always add one or two extra things to this to really make it fucking confusing. It's almost like baking a cake. All right. You bake a cake, all right, you want a little vanilla flavor to it, you add a little bit of vanilla abstract, fine. You, you're baking a cake, you want a little bit of a nut taste to it, yeah, okay, some crushed walnuts. But some people out there, oh, let me add vanilla and walnuts and chestnuts and almonds and cheese and blah and bake, and they add too many goddamn ingredients and they ruin the fucking cake. And that's how I felt that they did with this match. So originally you have Jim Cornette in the ring with various women that wrestled for TNA at the time, Angelina Love, Gail Kim, Christy Hame, uh, Jacqueline ODP, Rocky Khan, Roxy, Salinas, Tracy Brooks, Velvet Sky, I believe. Now, Awesome Kong was the champion at the time, so Jim Cornette, who worked for TNA at the time, was in the ring with all the women and made this announcement. Jim Cornette, as of late, has really lost patience when it comes to the TNA knockouts. Well, judging by that smile on his face, I think he's got something interesting to say. Now, ladies, 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 let's conduct ourselves like sports ladies. You got your invitations. I'm glad you're here because we have a very special match for you girls at Sacrifice. You, you all like makeovers, right? You like makeovers? I know you do. I can tell. Well, we have what we call a TNA Knockout Makeover Battle Royal. 
Knockout makeover battle royal, what is that? Well, it looks like even Awesome Kong and Saeed want to know what that's about. And you see, this is going to be a very special match because all of you in the ring are going to participate. It's going to start out as an over-the-top rope battle royal. And then when it get, gets down to just two girls left, then a ladder comes into play. We're going to bring that ladder in the ring, and we're going to have a contract hung way over the top of this ring, and the two girls are then going to fight to try to climb the ladder, and the person who does and gets that contract gets a TNA Knockout Championship match with Awesome Kong right up there. But don't think that we forgot about the runner-up because the runner-up, the girl that didn't quite climb to the top of that ladder, well, I'll make this short and sweet because I know you girls have things to do. You gotta go out tonight and put on makeup and text on your cell phones and knock each other behind your backs. So the runner-up is gonna get a little makeover. But I know what you young people like. I watch television. I know who you look up to. I know who your idol is, especially you two bimbos. Oh, that was directed to Angelina Love and Velvet Sky. So we're gonna give you, we're gonna give you a Britney Spears-style makeover. Because the runner-up, the girl that can't quite climb that ladder, is gonna get her head shaved in the middle of the ring. What? Did I hear that right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Peeled like an onion, slick as an egg. It's gonna be a makeover that you'll never forget. Ladies, at sacrifice, you better climb that stairway to heaven or elsewise one of you is gonna be in your own personal little hell. <laughs> wow, can you get a more ultimate sacrifice than that? One of them gets a world title shot and the other one gets the head shaved. So now if they would have just had this match as it is and just have, you know, the the final two, which was Gail Kim and Roxy, and the loser obviously gets her head shaved and the winner gets the title shot against Awesome Cock, fine. But they decided to do this stupid shit on TV that Gail Kim had previously won immunity on impact. So even if Gail Kim would not have climbed the ladder and won the title shot, she still wouldn't have had her head shaved. Why even fucking do something like that? I mean, it's just really retarded. And then, you know, you have, I think it was with Angelina Love, who was helping Gail Kim try to get the win. So anyway, the bottom line is that Gail Kim won, got the title shot, Roxy got her head shaved. But unfortunately, Roxy got a really bad cut on the top of her head during this match bloodied, looked horrendously bad. You could see that she was in pain to the point of tears, but holding it back because she wanted to remain strong. And you have this fucking Matarats shaving her head for like five or seven minutes and he's using a buzzer. And not only, look, you do, this is just so bad about TNA and this is not just the shit on TNA, but go watch the clip if you've never seen it. There's nobody out there that's going to disagree with me. Even if fucking Roxy said, no, 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 I want it that way because I'm a tough son of a bitch and I wanted to show that on TV. No, 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 no. When someone's head is fucking cut open that badly, all right, she had, you know, shoulder length hair. Cut off 80% of the fucking hair. Cut off half of it. 
Make her look awkward. But you got this fucking dick, this Matarach. And I don't know, it's not his fault, but you have this Matarach taking a buzzer and shaving, going, like, touching her skin. And you can see she's got this gash on her head, this blood, and he's, you know, shaving right onto the skin. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? And it's just you know, going on and on and on. And they're showing crowd a shot at Gail Kim. She looks like she was crying. You see fucking Tracy Brooks and others standing there and they're like holding her hand and like, Shona, please get through this. Please get through this. Please. It was a horrendous, horrendous segment to ever have. And honestly, I don't know why it's so fucking hard to improvise. She's injured like that. There's many ways you could have cut her hair, maybe not down to the fucking crew cut skin bald, you know, and man, you watch that. It's, it's, I mean, I'm not exaggerating. If you've never seen it, go check it out. 2008 Sacrifice Roxy gets her head shaved bald. 2009, Nick Bollea, the son of Hulk Hogan, Terry Bollea, sentenced to eight months in prison after pleading no contest in the audio accident that took place in Florida that seriously injured his friend John Graziano. We all know the story, but, you know, give Nick Bollea a whole lot of credit. He stayed out of trouble. You know, he's had a couple little moments here and there, but I truly believe that he has uh, learned from what happened. You know, a lot of the story was not good at that time, but, you know, the guy has, you know, been out of trouble. So it's, 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 I don't follow him closely, so I don't know. But for the most part, you look back from 2009 to the present, you really can't say much bad about Nick Hogan since, you know, serving his sentence and, you know, doing, and you look at other incidents. I think a lot of people were surprised that he even got eight months in jail. A lot of people thought that, you know, that something like this would have been far less, you know, maybe more probation, you know, community service, which he did get. But the eight months, I think a lot of people felt was very, very steep at the time. 2010, I don't know if you remember this, but a moment, this is where I like to interject little stories you may have forgot about. This week of 2010, Dixie Carter trying to find any way possible to get fans to help boost their ratings. She actually went on her Facebook page and addressed to fans who DVR Impact to please watch it within 72 hours so it would be included on that week's ratings. Now, if anybody out there knows anything about Nielsen and DVRs, especially in 2010, what she said makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. All right, if you're not being rated or or monitored by Nielsen at that time, you could DVR whatever the fuck you want. You don't affect the ratings. But just to hear her try, you know, just like almost pleading with people, please watch my product within three days. We need to be included on the ratings. You know, it just, I don't know. It it felt like, it felt flat, really felt absolutely flat. And something else that was suggested within TNA happened this week in history. Wait till you get to this one. This one was even a bigger doozy and unfortunately it was from Hulk Hogan's brain. 2011, very, very, very uh, memorable moment in the feud between Jared King Waller and Michael Cole. And the one thing that blows me away about this segment is to realize how many years have gone by since this happened. It does not feel this many years. 2011, Jerry Lawler and Michael Cole were feuding. This obviously would lead to matches. 
If you remember, Jack Swagger was protecting Michael Cole at that time. Jerry Lawler wanted to fight Michael Cole, but couldn't lay his hands on Michael Cole because if he did, he'd be fired from WWE. So you had Michael Cole in like this, you know, within this plastic cubicle that with plexiglass to protect him from all the outside people, sources. He'd have his desk, his chair, everything inside the plastic cubicle. But there was a hole so he could breathe. Even though there was a holes on top, you know, he needed a hole straight so he could breathe. Which, honestly, I think kind of makes sense because if there wouldn't have been no hole in front of him, you know, maybe the condensation from his breathing, the carbon dioxide might have, would, would cloud up the front of the plexiglass. There was no way they wanted that plexiglass clouding up because this was the moment that took place back in 2011 when Jerry Lawler grabbed Michael Cole's tie and started pulling Michael Cole to the front of the plexiglass. And yeah, Michael Cole's hands are hitting the plexiglass and you're hearing bang, bang, bang. But then you you knew that they practiced this beforehand because the visual was just too funny and priceless to be like a spur in a moment, holy shit, look at this shot. They knew in advance that Michael Cole's face is pushed against this plexiglass that it just looks like a bad cartoon. And that's what happened. I got the screenshot. It's on a synopsis. You look at the picture of Michael Cole's face pressed against the plexiglass, you'll remember this moment. And at the same time, you might agree with me. It is unbelievable that that many years have gone by since that segment. It does not feel that long. Same year in 2011, Brock Lesnar was supposed to fight at UFC 131 against Junior Dos Santos, and he was pulled because, unfortunately, he got struck with a second battle of diverticulitis. So, you know, I think a lot of people forget when they see Brock Lesnar these days, you know, they might forget the two battles he had with diverticulitis. And maybe Brock Lesnar is forced to have a very limited schedule. Could be because of health. Who knows? Who knows? 2011, something else happened here in the Northeast, especially. And I kind of feel bad because, first off, Fat Frank of Jersey All Pro Wrestling is no longer with us. I've talked in the past how he actually uh, had me manage a couple of his, you know, minor league shows. You know, he had Jersey All Pro Wrestling, but he also ran these tiny shows in a small little building in, what was it, Union, New Jersey? And it was mostly trainees and upcoming people. And you would have, you know, some appearances from famous people here and there. Tito Santana is the, probably the one I remember the most because Casey Blade of the Dirty Rotten Scoundrels made me almost pee my pants that night. He was wearing a mask, heckling everybody from the crowd. I still have a little bit of footage from my camera phone at that time. Um, but, you know, at this time, New Japan Pro Wrestling was getting a buzz overseas. So... Fat Frank, Jersey Old Pro Wrestling, came up with this idea of bringing New Japan to the United States. And they wrestled not only in Jersey, but they also wrestled two other shows. One was in Manhattan. I think the other one might have been in Pennsylvania. But Fat Frank invested a boatload amount of money to bring New Japan to the United States. And you look back at the card, the card is great. You look at websites, they report that he drew 1,800 fans that night. wasn't 1,800. The, the building was fucking packed to the rafters. But he didn't make the money that he thought he was going to make. He took such a hit from bringing New Japan to the United States that Jersey All Pro, if I remember correctly, was only holding events like almost like once every 
six, seven, eight months. I don't think he never fully, he never recovered. Now, in no way, shape, or form am I trying to insinuate that the stress of bringing New Japan to the East Coast is what killed him. You know, Fat Frank wasn't, you know, the greatest in health. All right, I'm just going to leave it like that. And nobody expected him to pass away this soon. Um, but still, this took a major, major hit to Jersey All Pro Wrestling. When he passed on, it was cool to see so many people in wrestling acknowledge his passing. Because for the most part, he was a regional promoter in Jersey. It's the same guy who I talked this week in history uh, about a month or two ago where he called Stern talking about wanting to uh, what strangle and kill prostitutes or something like that. It was just a further storyline. I don't agree with what he did, but he was a good guy. And bringing New Japan to Jersey All-Pro in 11, you know, we look back on it. It was a memorable night, but business-wise, probably a big mistake on JEPW's part. If you're curious to know the results from that night, just to show you where everybody is now compared to then, low-key in homicide over Jushin Thunder Lager and Tiger Mask. Satoshi Kojima over Kenny Omega. Giant Bernard, Carl Anderson, Prince Devitt, who you now know as Finn Balor, and Ryusuke uh, Taguchi over Shinsuke Nakamura, Jado and Gato, along with Davey Richards. Stack fucking card. Yuhiro you, you Takahashi over Hideo Saito. Tetsuya Naito over Josh Daniels, Toriano over Danny Moff, MVP over Okada, Charlie Haas and Rhino over Tanahashi and Toji Makabe. So it's a pretty damn good card. I think I don't think anybody will disagree with it, but still, the amount of money invested, not, not a good move on Jersey All Pro's part, in my opinion. 2012, WWE announces in a press release that NXT was going to be moving full-time to Full Sail University in Orlando. And uh, their first taping would take place the following week. We'll probably recap it on next week's episode. Now, remember earlier I said when Dixie came up with that DVR plea that Hogan had come up with a doozy as well? Well, this week in 2012, Hulk Hogan wants to... uh, enhance the reality part of TNA. Remember the real side of professional rest. Remember all that nonsense? We even did a spoof commercial. Mish was the genius behind the spoof commercial. It was, um, what the hell was the commercial we did? Reaction. <laughs> that was a great, I got to play that again. But to enhance the realism, the reality of pro wrestling, Hulk Hogan this week in 2012 comes up with an idea. And I remember covering this on a DTKC show. He encourages the TNA fans, whenever they see their wrestlers in public, at a restaurant, at a bar, at an amusement park with their family, taking a leak. Well, he didn't get into specific examples, but he did say he encouraged fans, wherever you see your wrestlers from TNA, record them, record the video, post it. And let's just say a ton of people who wrestle and work for TNA were pissed off. Hey, when I have my fucking personal time, my wife and kids, I don't want fucking people following me onto the rides and putting a camera in my face with my kids' face. A lot of people were very upset at this. And, you know, funny thing is, is I guarantee there's moments in Hulk Hogan's personal life where he doesn't want a camera thrown in his face. 
And this was, again, just another dumb idea. I mean, look, they were trying to do everything they can. So, you know, the, you know, the intentions were authentic and they were trying to come up with good ideas, but that was not a good one. Not by a long shot. And to close out 2012, Gail Kim marries her current husband, Robert Irvine, Chef Irvine. I, I was a fan of Dinner Impossible, Restaurant Impossible. I actually uh, enjoy his work. I like his attitude, his style. You know, blunt, brutally honest. And from what everybody says on the outside, good guy. So congrats to them. Happy anniversary. We're going to wrap this up momentarily. Uh, just one more audio clip to play. We're not at that moment yet, but let's get into 2013 first. A moment that I know Austin Aries probably regrets. Uh, Christy Hemi regrets it as well, but um, you know, look, I, I was going to play the audio, but it really doesn't come off on audio. You got to watch the visual, the visual of it. And again, you know, over the years, Austin Aries has apologized for it. But if you remember, you know, not too many episodes ago, we talked about how, you know, TNA had sent Austin Aries home because of some behavioral issues. You know, you wonder if, you know, maybe some behavioral issues have happened in other feds. You know, we do not like the way he was let go by WWE, but you never know the reasons, all the reasons behind it. I'm not trying to insinuate anything behavioral happened within WWE, but, you know, just another moment that, you know, I'm sure Austin Aries is not proud of. And I'm sure he didn't mean it as bad as it looked, but here's what happened. Uh, in 2013, an episode of Impact, it was going to be a match of Austin Aries and Bobby Roode versus Christopher Daniels and Kazarian. And what happened was Austin Aries and Bobby Roode were the ones coming out first, and she introduced them as Daniels and Kazarian. Like, you make a mistake. I mean, shit happens. So Austin Aries, a lot of people don't know if he was just trying to be the heel or, you know, just not thinking before doing something or if he was literally intentionally trying to sexually intimidate Christy Hemi. But he basically backs her into a corner and, you know, there there are facial gestures that you could give to someone in the ring and announce or something else where you're basically telling them, just go along with it, just go along with it, just being in character, fine. So that's never actually been said if that was the case with Austin Aries and Christy Hemi. But what happened was Christy Hemi announced the wrong people. Bobby Roode and Austin Aries hit the ring. And Austin Aries immediately starts talking, giving a bad mouth to Christy Hemi. He backs her into a corner and demands that she introduce them again. And she does it. As she's doing it, now remember, she's backed into a corner standing up. Austin Aries climbs the rope. So his crotch is literally in her face. And you hear on a mic go like, all right, yeah, okay, okay. Like, you know, that's that's enough. And she sounded legitimately upset at it. So, you know, people saw it on TV. They immediately tweeted her on Twitter. I don't remember exactly what her answer was, but she responded back, pretty much acknowledging that she was very uncomfortable, what went down. And then she would ultimately delete whatever she had tweeted. So, you know, it, it got a lot of negative press. And it got to the point where TNA was really getting ripped about it because TNA took a few days to respond. Austin Aries at the time, and I do have a copy of this, and I want to thank Mike for sending this along, um, when this was going down, Austin Aries went on Twitter and to have a play on words, he says, and I quote, pretty nuts. Some of the junk people get the balls to say over the net, knowing they couldn't do it to your, to your face. Eh, anyway, time to sack out. 
And then he says, hey, look at, yo, look at me. Look at here. I'm right here, people. Give me attention, please. I'm desperately begging for your attention. Blah, 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 blah. Victim nation. Blah, 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 blah. But if you listen to that first sentence again, it's a play on balls, you know, and just saying it different ways to try to say, you know, like, wow, pretty fucked up. Uh, time for me to go to bed. But instead, pretty nuts. Some of the junk. People have the balls to say, you know, time to sack out. So people are like, you know, it was wrong what he did, but now he's going on Twitter and saying shit like that. Anyway, the end result is that, you know, Austin Aries was forced to apologize. TNA uh, would ultimately put up a response. Dixie Carter did. Vice President of Communication from Spike TV spoke out on it, saying Austin Aries would be punished. And it just, the whole thing did not look good for TNA. And, you know, that tweet didn't help him either. But was it overblown? I don't know. I mean, look, if Christy Emmy was uncomfortable, then it shouldn't be overblown. You know, you can apologize to her and say publicly, look, I'm sorry, it was, I didn't mean it that way. You know, yeah, he's playing the heels, so maybe you don't say it in those specific words. But an apology could have been done immediately behind the scenes. You could tell that there wasn't one because she immediately responded on Twitter and then deleted a tweet. I guess, you know, she didn't want the added backlash to TNA. Still, not a good moment in TNA's history. And another moment in 2013 that, you know, was not a good moment. Thank God Dolph Ziggler is doing better. But it took place this past week. It was a match that went down on SmackDown. And it was Jack Swagger versus Big E. And if you recall, Dolph Ziggler was working with Big E at that time. A ladder got involved in a match. Jack Swagger kicked Dolph Ziggler in the head. Suffered a very serious concussion. And on top of it, I think Dolph Ziggler got hit with the ladder too. And WWE actually covered the story about this. Not only did Dolph Ziggler suffer a serious concussion, but he suffered what is called, oh, what the hell was it called? Shit. Retrograde amnesia. Retrograde amnesia. Just do a WebMD search of that. He didn't remember, you know, the taping. He doesn't even remember part of, you know, when he got home bad headaches, and you get scared about something like that. You immediately think of Bret Hart. You immediately think of others who would end up retiring from their profession because of concussion. So, you know, he's very, very lucky to have recovered from that. And who knows? You know, we don't know every little thing that happens behind the scenes. He could still have a headache here and there because of this. But still, it was a scare. Let's just leave it at that for now. This week in thirteen. 2014, Deanna Perrazzo makes her pro wrestling debut. She wrestled for TNA's one night only knockouts knockdown in Orlando. She wrestled under her name, her first name, and she lost to Brooke Adams. I'm not 100% sure if that's her first ever pro wrestling match, but that's basically what I could find. That same year, Buck Rock and Roll Zumoff sentenced to 25 years and 10 months in prison for two charges in the first degree, two charges in the third degree, criminal sexual contact, conduct with a minor, and also is trying to escape from custody. If you remember when he got convicted, he tried to run out of the courtroom and shit like that. He, he had been convicted uh, on counts of abuse in the past. In fact, when he was first arrested in 2013, he was charged with 12 felony counts of criminal sexual misconduct. You actually research the case of Buck Rock and Rozumov. You know, he wrestled. It was a Triple H's debut match against him in WWF. I think it might have been. But, you know, you read the details behind his story. Creepy motherfucker, man. He's still in jail. 
and uh, he's probably going to die in jail. He's in jail. I think uh, his first parole hearing, hearing isn't until 2031. So actually, you know, I said earlier we had one audio clip left. We actually have two. Sadly, another blunder, in my opinion, of TNA, 2015. They're trying to be edgier. You know, trying to pick up where WWE's being overly PC. So now you, you see and hear a concerted effort on their product of having wrestlers curse. Even if they're edited out, curse. Not, you know, a lot more than previously. And this week in 15, they had a live episode of Impact. I think it was on Destination America. So you had various wrestlers cursing throughout the night and it rubbed people the wrong way. It felt like it was being forced. Crowd did not like it. A lot of people complained and it just did not go over well for TNA. And I'm going to share with everybody just one quick example of it. Here is MVP in the ring. He's with his posse, which makes up Kenny King, uh, Loki and Homicide, who was not there. Obviously, you'll hear him talking about Homicide, the reason why he's not there. And he's confronting Drew Galloway, Drew McIntyre. And here's how it went down. Tonight on Destination America, Impact Wrestling is live. And because it's live, I'm going to say a few things that are going to make you uncomfortable, but the truth tends to do that. Before I get to that, I need to talk about this mask right here that belongs to the fourth member of the Beatdown Clan, my brother Homicide. Now, Homicide can't be here tonight because earlier in the week, he headed down to the bodega to cop a couple of fillies. And on his way out, somebody damn near him, blindsided him, and he had to have shoulder surgery. Now, I'm not saying that Drew Galloway and the Rising hang out in the Bronx, but I believe they probably know somebody and made a call to some affiliated bangers to touch my boy Homicide. That does not fly. But what has me so confused about this whole thing with the Rising, when they stoop down to disgusting, despicable, cowardly acts like that, you cheer them. You stand up for the rising. Now we, the beatdown clan, we do what we want to do. We take what we want to take. The same way when your United States government wanted Iraqi oil fields, they just took them. When they wanted Libyan oil fields, they just took them. We do that, we take gold, and you speak so badly of us. When we skirt the rules like your Congress does to make the rules work for them, when we do that, you call us thugs. Thugs. You act like you don't know that thug is a new code word for Yeah, that's right, I said it. Because you're too afraid to. And that's how you feel. So, Drew Galloway, since you want to act So, yeah, MVP actually used the N-word. And, you know, look, I know for some of you out there, you're going to be like, that's it. But, no, if you look at the whole episode of Impact, and this went on various episodes, 
I know Destination America was not thrilled about it as well. This was another blunder. You know, instead of just having things happen organically, trying to come off as being edgy, and it backfired. It really did. 2015, a sad moment in pro wrestling, which has now turned into a positive moment. You know, we know Daniel Bryan now in the ring wrestling once again, recovered from his head injuries. But in 2015, I think a lot of people forget that when he was forced, you know, into retirement, like, look, he didn't officially retire until many, many months later. But this week in 2015 was pretty much the first step in his original retirement. He was the IC champion, and he would be forced to relinquish the IC title. So now he's back wrestling again, and I'm surprised how a lot of people out there haven't said, how come he's not getting a return IC championship match? He never lost the title. You know, you could do that still. No reason why, but you can't wait too long. But it was this week in 15 that Daniel Bryan came out to the ring, cut a promo, announcing that he was forced to relinquish the IC title. This is how it went down on TV. So, the last couple of weeks, I've been in and out of doctor's appointments, and uh, other than that, I've just been having a lot of downtime. And I don't do so well with downtime. I, uh, I need to be where the action is. I need to be where there's some excitement. I need to be where there's some energy. to be standing back there, right behind the curtain, waiting for my music to hit, so I could come out here and be a part of a reaction like that. How long have you guys been treating me like I was something special, huh? How, how long, it seems like it's years now. It's years that you guys have been treating me way better than anybody in the back has ever treated me. And, and that's why it was so crushing to me last year, almost exactly a year ago, when Stephanie came out here and stripped me of my WWE World Heavyweight Championship.
not just because of me, but because I felt like I let you guys down. You guys are the reason why I even got that opportunity. They weren't going to give me an opportunity. You guys gave me an opportunity. But the hard thing for me to admit, even as you guys are yesing right now, is that Stephanie was right to do it. Because no one knew how long I would be out, I was hurt, and I couldn't defend the championship. And if you guys deserve anything, you guys deserve a fighting champion. Which is actually why I asked to come out here tonight. MRI last week. They don't know how long I'll be out. They said maybe weeks, uh, maybe months. They said I might never ever be able to wrestle again. But, despite the uncertainty in my career, that makes me know for a fact what needs to happen with the Intercontinental Championship. You deserve to have WWE superstars fighting for this championship. You deserve Wade Barrett. You deserve Dolph Ziggler. You deserve Dean Ambrose fighting for this championship. The Intercontinental Championship should not be sitting on a physical therapist's chair it deserves to be in this ring. And in this ring is where I am going to leave it. Tonight, I officially relinquish my Intercontinental Championship.
You guys have got it all wrong. For everything that you guys have done for me, I just have one thing left to say. Thank you. wrap up this episode 2016 we unfortunately had the arrest and ultimate demise of his wrestling career adam rose you know so sad you know one month earlier he is so heavily featured on the espn piece talking about his son who was suffering from that rare abdominal defect that he has to be fed through like a tube in his stomach you know, we thought that this was going to get built around Adam Rose on TV. WWE could do something with it. She's getting so much support online. They'll get a push. And they did nothing. And then Adam Rose, this week in 2016, he is arrested and charged with domestic violence battery, uh, tampering with a witness because she wanted to call. I think she wanted to call 911 and he grabbed the phone away from her and, you know, just that, that they charge him with tampering with a witness. Uh, if you forget, he had already been suspended for, because of the wellness program. So Adam Rose, I mean, this was not a good time in his life. And, you know, ultimately the charges would get resolved in Florida, but he was let go from WWE not too long after this. And he is now, for the most part, retired from pro wrestling. That's a guy when he first came into WWE, you know, we liked the Leo Kruger gimmick, but, you know, the Adam Rose, don't be a rosebud, you know, don't be a lemon, be a rosebud. I think it fell flat in a lot of ways. And then the bunny shit, I mean, a lot of it you can't blame Adam Rose for, but what a really horrible way for his career to end. You know, I still think he could salvage some of it, maybe get that extra fire, but, you know, maybe it's better he just stays away from the entertainment world, gets a different job, raise his family, concentrate on his kid, resolve his issues in his marriage, his, you know, maybe his behavioral problems and try to and just enjoy a good life. So we, I think deep down we all wish him well. And finally, 2017, Scott Hall suffered a pretty serious health scare, or they thought it was a serious health scare. He was working in the UK for Paige's family promotion, the Knight family. It was a show uh, in Norwick for the WAW promotion. Um, basically, he had got rushed to the hospital with chest pains, did not feel well at all. And it ended up that it had to do uh, with some of his medication accidentally being left in the United States. And because he didn't have some of his meds, his body started, I don't want to say failing, but reacting to it in a very bad way. So he was rushed to the hospital. Luckily, he was discharged the next morning. 
And, um, you know, there was no abuse, no overdose or anything like that. I want to be perfectly clear. He just unfortunately had forgot some of his meds, thought he could get, you know, through a few days without it. That wasn't the case. Thank God he was fine. And finally, the NWA, uh, Billy Corgan relationship pretty much is uh, signed on the dotted line. This week in 2017, Billy Corgan is officially the owner of the NWA. And, you know, a couple of additional tidbits needed to be finalized here and there, but it was pretty much a done deal. This week at 17, Billy Cargan, the owner of the NWA. Notable birthdays this week, those celebrating birthdays who are no longer with us. First, happy birthday to Danny Hodge, Killer Call Krupp, Scott Irwin, Dr. Dead Steve Williams, Tommy Rogers, and Mike Shaw. Happy birthday to all of you. Butcher Vashon turns 80, Robert Fuller, 67, Tito Santana, 65, Vader, 63, Paul Diamond, Akira Tao, and Dennis Rodman turn 57. Yeah, I included Dennis Rodman. He did a couple of shots in wrestling. I think he deserves it. Glacier turns 54, Umberto Garza Jr. turns 52, William Regal, Kevin Kelly, the announcer, and Hugh Mungus turn 51. Mantar turns 50, Aki Bono 49, Doug Basham 47, Billy Kidman 44, Truth Martini and Little Genie turn 43, Sean Osborne and Ricky Ortiz turn 42, Happy Birthday Bobby Roode turns 41, Nick Burke 39, Nikki Benz 38, Abuhiko Takata and Jimmy Yang turn 37, Puck turns, turns 36, Shinya Aoki and uh, Daisy Hayes turn 35, Tommaso Ciampa and Zack Ryder turn 33. Lince Dorado, 31. Bestia, 666, turns 29. Io Shirai turns 28. And Scarlett Bordeaux, 27. Debuts this week. Perro Guayo debuted in 1970. Tatsumi Fujinami in 71. Jake the Snake Roberts in 75. Ultimo Dragon in 87. Steve Austin debuted in 89. Kelly Kelly in 2006. And Diana Perrazzo, 2014. And finally, notable deaths this week in pro wrestling. This week, we lost Jesse James in history at age 83, Judy Grable at 82, Fred Ward and Leo Garibaldi at 78, Fred Atkins at 77, Guy Brunetti at 75. Gorgeous George Jr., no relation, and George Gordienko died at 74. Penny Banner died at 73, Frank Tunney at 70. Jules Strongbow, not that, that one, but John Bilbo, I think his name was. He died at 69. Uh, Ilio DiPaolo at 68. Danny Littlebear at 65. Big Bully Busick, who died recently at 63. Princess Jasmine at 60. Little Boy Blue died at age 57. Johnny Ram Ram Evans passed away at age 50. Jumbo Saruta at 49. Wayne Van Dyke at 29. And I'm going to include him only because he is obviously known, albeit for the wrong reasons, Eric Kulis, the infamous incident with New Jack. Eric Kulis died at 22. That is your week in wrestling history. Follow me on Twitter, at DonTonyD. The website, DonTony.com. Email me, DonTony at DonTony.com. Facebook.com slash DTKCShow. And as always, if you like what we do, you want to help support the shows, help us keep the bills paid, keep these free for everyone, consider our Patreon page. It is patreon.com slash Don Tony. You could sign up for as little as five bucks. 
get access to our predictions contest, silver and gold giveaways, plus our hundreds of hours of Patreon-exclusive podcasts. Yours truly and Anthony Missionary Thomas of Wrestling Soup. Every other week we do a show called Breakfast Soup. It averages two to three hours length each episode. Uh, you have Kevin Castle who does his solo show, Castle Chronicles. We have early releases of other shows that we do, this one as well. And, you know, some other podcasts. So go check it out. Patreon.com slash Don Tony. Everyone, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I will be back in one week with your next episode. Thank you for the support. As always, keep sending in your feedback, suggestions. Believe me, I do listen to everybody's. And uh, thank you once again. I'll talk to you all soon. Ciao. Support the Don, Tony, and Kevin Castle show on Patreon. Get access to thousands of hours of back episodes. Get bonus episodes and exclusive shows. Castle Chronicles. Breakfast Soup. Pay-per-view recaps. DVDs. Beer koozies. Tattoos. And more. Support the show that's entertained millions for over 16 years. Patreon.com slash Don Tony. Once again, Patreon.com slash Don Tony. I'm enrolling in Medicare soon, and it had me a little confused. Then I found MyHealthPolicy.com. With MyHealthPolicy.com, I could go online and compare Medicare Advantage plans from some top-rated national insurers, including $0 monthly premium plans. I could learn about plans in my area and talk with a licensed insurance agent if needed. MyHealthPolicy.com has made doing my research a whole lot easier. My choice, my Medicare, myhealthpolicy.com. New to Medicare? Start now. Go to myhealthpolicy.com to learn about some of the top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including plans for $0 a month in plan premiums, low out-of-pocket costs, and expansive provider networks. If you're thinking about a Medicare Advantage plan, myhealthpolicy.com is a great place to go to find a plan that meets your needs. Learn more about your options. Even talk with a licensed insurer agent myhealthpolicy.com I'm enrolling in Medicare soon and it had me a little confused then I found myhealthpolicy.com with myhealthpolicy.com I could go online and compare Medicare Advantage plans from some top-rated national insurers including $0 monthly premium plans I could learn about plans in my area and talk with a licensed insurance agent if needed myhealthpolicy.com has made doing my research a whole lot easier My choice, my Medicare, myhealthpolicy.com.